Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald face truth. I could come out of the gates firing today. I could come out, gloves up, kind of like Mike Tyson back in his prime, swinging and punching. We could try to end this thing in less than a minute, but I'm not going to. I'm going to start with a slow burn today. And, I, and you know what? There's part of me that is burning over this. It bothers me that college sports wants to fashion itself as professional sports, but only to a certain point. That's really what we're seeing, right? The SEC, the Big Ten, lining themselves up like they're a semi-professional sports league. But if we could turn our attention just for a moment to the NFL, the real professionals, we find the NFL today fining and suspending the Miami Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross. They fined him $1.5 million. That's a little more than a slap on the wrist for tampering. Real estate developer, owner of the Dolphins, has been suspended from participating in team events and operations through the 17th of October. Dolphins will forfeit their first round pick in the 2023 draft. They'll lose their third-round pick in the 2024 draft. All of this over Tom Brady. The NFL investigated reports that the Dolphins tampered with coaches and players from other teams and that it intentionally lost games to improve its draft prospects. All that stuff with tampering and tanking games, all of that turned out to be true. But the truth is, at the root of this, is the conversations that were held in 2019 and 2022 with then-Patriots quarterback Tom Brady Brady, and the agent of then-Saints coach Sean Payton. Apparently they flew in the face of the league's policies as they pertain to tampering. Now, it's very difficult to prove that a team intentionally lost games. We all know, for example, that the Trailblazers intentionally lost games last season. They were jockeying for more draft lottery combinations, ping pong balls, whatever metaphor you want to use. They were uh, they shut down players who weren't all the way hurt. They uh, turned an eye towards going young, non-competitive on the court. I mean, Stephen, uh, you know, can you back me up here? The Blazers, as you saw them last season, you know, what did they do down the stretch really to try to lose games? Well, you could say that Damian Lillard was healthy because he technically, after the surgery, was cleared to play, but they rested him. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic was definitely not hurt. He didn't play. Anthony Simons, same thing. So they benched a lot of their regular players, and they went with guys who either aren't on the roster or will not be getting uh, meaningful, meaningful minutes this season. So it's difficult to prove that they were really trying to lose games, but we all know they were trying to lose games. But So the Miami Dolphins in the NFL, to that point, the Miami Dolphins, uh, very difficult for the NFL to prove that they intentionally lost games. But they looked into it 
they looked into it, and what they came away with was, hey, there was some tampering going on because that was also part of the investigation. Tampering with coaches and players from other teams, not allowed. I want to turn now back to college football because we all know in this era of collectives, in this era of name-image likeness, um, in this era where you have players jumping into the portal and transferring, College coaches are uncomfortable because they're watching it turn into professional sports, but there's no oversight like the NFL. There's nobody who's able to come in and investigate and prove that USC took a wide receiver from Pitt, for example, as it's being alleged, uh, and took a wide receiver who may have received an NIL deal. Herm Edwards, the Arizona State coach, told us on yesterday's show that, you know, hey, guys that are second-string quarterbacks – are jumping in the portal and they're getting paid and they're not getting paid after they got into the portal they're being promised that money as they are stepping into the portal there's a problem in college athletics and it has to do with the regulation of college athletics there's no commissioner in college sports there's nobody overseeing the major college conferences there's nobody looking out for the health of the game there's nobody there to properly investigate or vet the reports that are out there about players getting six- and seven-figure deals, like NIL was supposed to provide an opportunity for athletes who are college athletes who want to benefit from their name, image, likeness. And there's examples all over the place of this being done the right way. For example, an agent who represents Noah Sewell, the Oregon linebacker, reached out to me today. We had some correspondence about Noah possibly joining this radio show. Now, I've told him, I said, hey, we don't pay for interviews, but they're interested in exposure for Noah Sewell. So he's saying, look, uh, we, we know there's not a better way to get him in front of all the people in Oregon than getting him on your show. And uh, you look, I'm happy to have Noah Sewell on once a week, every other week. We're trying to figure out where he's going to come on during the season. Jaden Grant, Oregon State, same thing. Once on the show, what happens? He gets an endorsement deal with Jamba Juice, who hears him on the show. So there's name image likeness done in the spirit of NIL, right? It was supposed to be athletes on their own or with the use of an outside agency able to capitalize on their name image likeness but i couldn't help but think of the hypocrisy in the double standard today as i saw the reports about the dolphins owner stephen ross getting fined and getting suspended by the nfl for violating tampering policies ross is the owner he takes the fall even if it wasn't him making the calls he has the authority and the institutional control of the Miami Dolphins. And so he is the guy who has to write the check to pay the fine at the end. He's the guy who ultimately is responsible for being suspended. And he's going to lose some draft picks. Like the NFL doesn't mess around when it comes to this stuff. I think it's a major problem in college sports. And frankly, like I saw today, uh, Arizona State reached out to me today. They have started what they are calling the Sun Angel Collective. They're in the game, so to speak. Like, Oregon's got Division Street. UCLA has the Bruin Fan Alliance. Washington State has the Cougar Collective. Oregon State's got their own collective. But Arizona State was taking some heat on Media Day because it didn't have a collective working to help compensate athletes. It was behind, so to speak, in this game. And so today, ASU announced we're in the game. Like, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, we're in the game the Sun Angel Collective has been announced. It has a website. It has a board of directors. It has a mission. And it has a deep pool of potential donors. I don't have a problem with these collectives. But I do have a problem that 
college athletics wants to fashion itself as professional sports, but it doesn't have the infrastructure of professional sports. There is no governing body. There are no rules. There are no regulations. The NCAA woefully unprepared to deal with name image like this transfer portal, the shifting landscape. Uh, you know, that's why Mark Hemmert, president of the NCAA, is getting out of the game. He knows. It's passed him by. So I would caution people out there that are all about this turning into, hey, this is the new face of college athletics. This is just the direction things go. Get off your lawn if you're not on board with this. I would caution you to examine whether or not the NFL would be a fun place to work and do business if it had no commissioner, no oversight, no guidelines, no penalties for teams that tampered. You'd end up with a elementary school playground. You know how teams used to get picked on the playground at my elementary school? Like, it, it started out at the beginning of the school year, like all the good players would go, hey, let's organize and get on the same team. And then after about two recesses, it was like, this isn't fun. It's not competitive. Let's pick the best two players and have them be team captains. And the market regulated itself. And then pretty soon it was like, okay, uh, whoever has the first pick, uh, you know, the next guy picking gets two picks. And then we really tried to create a parody, even on the playground, because parody was more interesting. It was more fun. And in college athletics, there is a real loss of parody right now with the SEC and the Big Ten organizing themselves and jockeying for position with the playoff and stealing UCLA and USC from the Pac-12 and Texas and Oklahoma from the Big 12 and sort of moving towards a professional model complete with players getting compensated with no oversight whatsoever. Am I the only one bothered by this? Stephen, Sean, what do you make of a system that wants to be more like professional athletics than ever before but doesn't have the infrastructure? Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of it. And the interesting thing at Media Day, uh, the Pac-12 Media Day, Herm Edwards seemed very much evolving to the new landscape of college football. So for this news to come out today about you know the Sun Angel thing, it's pretty interesting at that point. But you know, as a you know, I wasn't a big time college athlete, but I played small college basketball at Concordia, and I always felt like the players at the bigger schools, they got, they, they would get you get money anyways, right? You get stipends, you get different things. So there was always money being handed out to the players, and now it's just on a way bigger stage. And I just don't think that they're, you know, they're ready to be professionals yet, if, for lack of a better term. And I understand, and I like that they make money off their name, image, and likeness because that is what it should be. But the, you know, the the amount of money that's being exchanged between hands is just astronomical to me. And it does seem like there's going to be a problem in college football and college sports in general in the upcoming years because it just it doesn't seem like he'll be able to stand on his own two legs. Yeah, there have just been, throughout these media days, like there have been so many coaches that have said that this sport needs guidelines and the NIL needs guidelines. And, um, you know, Nick Saban, Kirk Ferentz, and heard it from Pac-12 Media Day quite a bit. And I think think it's totally true. Like if, if college football is truly trying to be like kind of minor league NFL, then it, it totally needs like some kind of over overseeing person, you know, like a college football commissioner almost to kind of play that Roger Goodell rule because right now the sport doesn't really have that. And you're right. There's probably a lot of tampering uh, happening, happening in this sport right now at the transfer portal and everything, but there's no one like Roger Goodell to, to kind of lay down the law, like what happened with the dolphins today. What's your phone calls? 503-417-7575. Let's kick it around. I do think like having a governing body that could give oversight 
over the top of the SEC and the Big Ten and whatever else is formed. Like, I think ideally, if you were a commissioner, what I would foresee for college athletics are four conferences, right? A North, a South, an East, and a West. And maybe the Eastern Conference becomes the ACC, and the South is the SEC, and the North is the Big Ten, so to speak, and the West is the Pac-12. Like, ideally, in a perfect world, all those entities would have roughly the same media rights distribution, and you'd have some rules within them, like no contact, no tampering. If a player wants to jump in the portal on their own volition and transfer to another university, great. That's available to them, but an inducement should not be part of that. A collective should not be part of that. That should come after they transfer. Uh, in the NFL, they are set to regulate that. I'm sure things happen. I'm sure there's loopholes, but by and large, the NFL appears to not be asleep at the wheel, and today is evidence of that. Hey, John, I got a question for you real quick. If there was a governing body in college football, do you think that, like you said, the four conferences, if they made the East, West, South, and North, do you think all four of those conferences could agree on terms? Because right now, the SEC and the Big Ten is so far ahead of everybody, why would they go back? Yeah, they'd have to agree on the terms. And it has to start with the playoff, right? And the problem is that the SEC is in an unusually advantageous position when it comes to the playoff. Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, who I I have a lot of respect for. I think he cares about the game, but I also think he's sitting pretty uh, as commissioner of one of the conferences that's clearly a have. Like, Greg Sankey's got an awful lot of influence into the college football playoff. He's got a lot of power. And when you look at, like, everybody keeps talking about Notre Dame going to the Big Ten – I'm telling people to pump the brakes because if I'm Notre Dame, I don't need to go to the Big Ten to get into the playoff. I can get into the playoff as an independent. So it comes down, if you're Notre Dame, can you participate in the playoff? Yes. Can you get a media rights deal from NBC that is comparable with the 70 to $100 million that the SEC and the Big Ten are going to get every year? And I think if the answer to that is yes, Notre Dame stays independent. Now, I think Greg Sankey, the SEC, has got a dog in this fight. I think he wants Notre Dame to stay independent. I don't think he wants them to go to the Big Ten Conference. So I think the SEC is going to create a playoff structure that is very much designed to allow Notre Dame to participate. But see, while I think that part of that is good for the game, it's really what's good for the SEC that the SEC is doing, and it's good for the Big Ten what the Big Ten does. And the Pac-12 is looking out for the Pac-12. And so nobody, nobody is looking out for all of college athletics, and therein lies the problem. So, yes, you have to create a structure where somebody is in charge in college athletics. Somebody's got to be the commissioner. There has to be a governing body that can swoop in and go, hey, wait a minute, player just jumped in the portal, he's getting a seven-figure deal, we're investigating that, and we're either going to clear said player or we're going to rule said player ineligible, and we're going to penalize the university that took him by saying you can't participate in the playoff this year if you tampered because it should be a stiff penalty if you're tampering. Let's go to Josh in Vancouver. Josh, go ahead. Hey, John, thank you for taking my call. Hey, man, you're you're just on fire right now. So one of the things that I find really frustrating is is one of the reasons that, you know, we wanted to get payers played, which full confessional up front, I think they should be. I think players should be able to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness, and it shouldn't be disputed. But where I think right now the biggest ball drop has been is that before this was allowed to happen, everybody screamed bloody murder and said that these universities or people associated with universities were going to use this as leverage to sway players 
and that that's not supposed to happen. How hard would it have been for a governing body to come in and say, okay, any NIL deal that comes through has to go through a review process, mm. and that that deal is binding regardless of what university the student attends. So if the student decides to transfer, they still get the money. And so there's got to be some sort of governing body out there willing to do this. I don't think it's the NCAA. The NCAA has no more legs, teeth, uh, gums. I don't even know what you want to call it anymore. I mean, it would literally be like gnawing on baby food right now for them to try to step in and do anything. But we realistically have moved away from college sports, really what it used to be and what we all grew to love over the years. And quite frankly, the thing that made people that endured college sports to people was really the thing that forced them away from pro sports, which is athletes could be bought coaches could be bought There was no loyalties. There was no traditions. There was nothing. It's just money and what you do for me today and now and in this moment. I still think there's a way forward that can achieve allowing payers, players to be paid, universities to thrive financially while honoring traditions and things of the past. But if it keeps going on the path it is, it's not going to look anything like what we all have grown to love when it comes to college sports. Thanks, John. I appreciate the phone call and the passion. I, I'll tell you what's going to happen. We're like three to six months away from a high-profile athlete who has received a six- or a seven-figure deal jumping in the portal and jilting the university that gave them that deal. And at that point, we are going to find out legally where this all stands because I assume that somebody's going to go, you know what? You can keep your $600,000, your $200,000, your $80,000, and the pickup truck, whatever it was that they got, and I'm going to go to a different university, and we're going to find out how binding those things are. Uh, college athletics keeps pointing to federal intervention. They're pointing to Congress, and they're going, hey, help us. We need oversight. And, you know, I'm hearing a lot of blowback from – that circle saying we've got more important things to do and we asked senator ron wyden on this show i asked him about federal intervention and you could tell he was lukewarm it wasn't like it was high on the to-do list uh for for our lawmakers like hey yeah this is something we really want to get involved with uh, i actually think college athletics should be policing itself frankly you made the rules you know you you made the bed lie in it now and 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 frankly these coaches that are looking around going hey we know like i saw a thing where where uh ryan day ohio state's coach was asked how much nil money he would need from his boosters to keep his roster together annually he said 13 million dollars that's almost like a salary cap number for college sports like saying hey Ohio State needs 13 mil to keep its roster together. How much does Alabama need? How much does Georgia need? How much does LSU need? And, and you know, we go right down the line. I think it's a really interesting time, but I just I sort of shook my head at the absurdity today of the NFL doing what it does. The NFL is going, look, you can't tamper. We have rules. We have rules for a reason. We don't want uh, owners and GMs and coaches and players uh, circumventing their own contracts and stealing from each other. It's not good for the health of the game. It's not good for the mission, which is parody. Meanwhile, college athletics off the rail, drunk on itself. Nick Dashiell of the Oregonian covers Oregon State. He's going to join us next. I'm going to ask him about the Beavers' season 
Is 3-0 out there as a start for Jonathan Smith? And if they start 3-0, they would be a 3-0 team playing at home against USC in week four. We'll talk to Dashiell next about the Beavers' season. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest covers Oregon State like no other. Nick Daschle joining us live via satellite. How did your media day go, Nick Daschle? It wasn't bad. It, I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't really talked to you about how you felt like Pac-12 media day went, but it was it was quite a bit of chaos. But I felt like I felt like I got what I needed. It took a little took a little work, but I felt like I got what I needed. Before I ask about Oregon State. Some people believe that George Klyovkov was great up on the stage. Took some shots at the uh, Big 12, took some shots at the Big 10, rolled his sleeves up, uh, you know, kind of positioned himself as the adult in the room. Other people say he got off his talking points during the Q&A session and he sounded petty. Are you on either one of those camps or somewhere in the middle? No, nah, I'm in the middle. I mean, he didn't have any news really, and so without any, you know, real hard news, uh, you know, I just thought if I was entertaining, um, but you know, I, what, what is he, what, what is he supposed to do? He, he, he supported the conference and I, I mean, it, it was fun to watch, but that was about all it was. There wasn't a lot of substance behind any of it. Jonathan Smith was there along with his offensive and defensive players, Alex Austin on the defensive side and, uh, Luke Musgrave on the offensive side. Um, I felt like they were trying to get those guys some visibility. Like there are higher profile players they could have brought, but they, you know, they just brought two guys that maybe we haven't heard a lot from. Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, you bring your quarterback down, but you know, Chance hasn't really nailed the job down, even though I, I think he will be the starter. So they didn't want to bring him. Uh, you know, Jaden Grant has been there before. Uh, Omar Spates could have been, I guess he, they could have brought him, but he's, he's not a, I mean, he's, he's a nice guy, but he's not a great talker. Um, you know, they wanted to bring Alec Austin cause he's from LA. So he, you know, he was, that, that was one reason they brought him and Luke Musgrave, I kind of think is going to be, I said, thought last year he was going to be the breakout guy, but I'll guess I'll say it again. I think he's going to be the breakout guy on offense this year. I, I just, find it hard to believe he's not a guy that, that's not going to see the football a lot this next year. So I think that's why they brought those two guys. I don't know who else they really could have brought. I mean, the running back, the running back position is, is kind of up in the air. There's not a receiver that you would go, you know, uh, that really sticks out. And generally speaking, you, you, you typically don't bring offensive linemen. Although I, I would have, I, I, I asked him, I said, Brandon Kipper would be a great one to bring yep. back because he's well-spoken and whatnot. But they went with those two, which is which is fine. Let's talk about their schedule. They're going to open with Boise State at home. Always a tough opponent. They will play Fresno State in week two. They'll get Montana State in week three. Uh, I keep saying 3-0 and is out there, but also 1-2 and might be out there with Boise State and Fresno State on the schedule. How do you feel about... Oregon State's ability to get through the non-conference 
with a 3-0 and record? Yeah, I would be a little surprised at 3-0. and I mean, I'm not saying it, it, it. It could definitely happen. I mean, all three teams they're capable of beating. I just think... I just think Fresno State is going to be one tough ask, and as I'm, I'm writing some, you know, some talking points right now for, for you know, for for practice opening tomorrow, and uh, you know they have, and one of one of them is they haven't won an opener since 2015, and granted the opener's been tough, but so is this one, and you know at some point you got to break through and win one of those openers. I think if you're gonna if you're gonna claim to be a good football team, I mean you can't just keep starting out 0-1, so I think it's a perfect setup. They're coming off a 6-0 and year at home. You know, Boise State is good, but they're not, they're certainly not, you know, a top 10 or 15 program like some of the teams they have played in the past in openers, so um, I think it's, you know, I think winning the opener is important. I will say, I don't think, you know, 1-2, and 3-0, and 2-1, and I don't think it I don't think it muddies the the water in terms of what Oregon State could do this year because Smith's teams they they, they tend to you know they, they, they it's like kind of like the old cliche water off a duck's back that's kind of what that's kind of what Oregon State does with losses it seems like under Smith you know that they got off the O and two start a few years back with with you know with Oklahoma State and Hawaii and they came back and darn near had a winning season and so. I, I I think that that's one of the things that Jonathan has been really good at is getting them to turn the page pretty quickly after losses. So I don't know a three and zero start would certainly would certainly you know bring a lot of eyeballs to the program, especially with USC being game four. But I don't know that one and two, two and one, three and zero is going to change you know what this team is capable, of, and that's you know a possible run at, at the Pac-12 championship game. The running back position, freshman Damian Martinez, we saw him in spring ball a little bit. He looks every bit like the bell cow back. How much depth, though, do they have at that position? Yeah, it's a good it's a good position. I did notice, uh, I was just looking at the roster here a little bit ago. I noticed they, they trimmed him down to 216 pounds, so he's down 12 <laughs> pounds from, uh, you know, so I'm assuming they put a few college muscles on him and, took a little baby fat off of him. So I'm guessing that's going to make him a little faster and hopefully, you know, his, his strength is still there, but he's going to have his hands full winning the job because, you know, Deshaun Fenwick is, he, he was legitimate. He was a legitimate backup to BJ Baylor last year. He had a hundred yard game. And if he hadn't got hurt later in the year, I think he would, I think he might've had a couple more. So he's certainly capable. And I, I know they love Trey Lowe. I don't think he's a starting running back because I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say he couldn't uh, hold up to the pounding of a, of a, of a, you know, a 20 to 25 carry guy, but, but he's, he's capable. I know Smith, Smith told me, you know, Friday that Lowe and Fenwick both had great summers. So I expect that to be one of the highlights, uh, highlights of, of camp as a competition at running back. I keep looking across this conference and, I keep coming back to something. I see one team that looks ready to compete at a high level, and it's Utah. They don't have a bunch of questions to answer. They're, they're kind of locked in right now. they got guys to come back, even though they made a Rose Bowl. Everybody else has got some big questions. Oregon's got questions. USC's got questions. I, I wouldn't be surprised, Nick, if we saw a bunch of teams win six, seven, eight games. It, it feels like there could be that kind of cannibalization that happens 
with positions two through about five or six in the conference. And I think that would benefit teams like Washington State and Oregon State that got have some continuity. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I mean, I don't want to sound like you know Homer football beat guy, but I, I picked Oregon State second for a reason in the in the preseason poll because this just is one of those years where you know in the in the North three of the six teams have new coaches. Stanford is you know is still trying to figure out how to get back and. And Cal is, you know, Cal hasn't proven itself under, you know, in the last couple of years. So, and Oregon State's is veteran has been under Smith. So, I, I could, I, I, I could, I, I'd be surprised if they don't get to a bowl game. And I think eight and nine wins is out there for this team, particularly if they do get off to a good start. But, but yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't see. I don't see that. I mean, I, it's not going to surprise me if USC goes seven and five or eight and four, even just because. Yeah. I mean, they've got holes as well. I, I know. I talked to, I've talked to a couple of Oregon State players. And, you know, I won't say who, but you know, I, I mentioned that USC game last year, and they just were. I mean, the, the defense was just pitiful. I mean, and so it's not like they've totally retooled the roster over on yeah. that side. I mean, they may have a new approach, but they're still going to have some issues trying to stop teams. So. Uh, yeah, you're right. I, I could see a lot of teams in that six to eight eight win group, and that would include Oregon State. Yeah, I look at as I look at the conference. You know, I actually feel pretty solid about UCLA. I think they've got a lot back. I think they could be an eight win team solidly. But beyond that, you know, I think Oregon's in that conversation. I wouldn't be surprised if Washington won six or seven. I wouldn't be surprised if Stanford was a little better, got to six and made a bowl game. David Shaw seemed to be talking with some confidence, and I agree with you on USC. I think it's going to be a tougher uh, build than Lincoln Riley uh, probably expects in this conference. Uh, let's talk about the quarterback position. You mentioned Chance Nolan. I think we're on the same page. We, uh, we view him as the likely opening day starter. How far away is Tristan Jebbia, though, from competing and making that a decision or a tough decision? Well, this is going to be the, this is going to be the best competition at, at, at quarterback that Smith has had in five years. And every year he's taken it right to the end of camp before he's made a decision. I'm not saying that's going to happen again this year. I think he I think you know deep down he'd like to know who his quarterback is about ten to fourteen days into camp, but. But Jebbia, from all accounts, is is as healthy as he's been in you know two years, and Gulbert and Ben Gulbertson is the same same thing. He's he, he's coming off a year where he didn't play either because of the shoulder surgery. And I I know they like I know they like Gulbertson. They just need to see him you know be consistent, consistently hit passes you know in the in the intermediate and as long. I know they like him, so Nolan's going to have to. I I think he's going to be the guy. But he's going to have to show he can hit those hit the downfield stuff like he wasn't able to do a year ago, and make a little bit better decisions and play more consistently. Because when he was when he was playing well, Oregon State was hard, Oregon State's offense was hard to stop. So it, it's going to be a tough competition. But I, I do think that Nolan, if if he's made that next step, is, is going to win the job. Nick Daschle with us covers Oregon State for the Oregonian. You can read him on Oregon Live. Daschle, the downfield threats for this team, they, they've always been better at Oregon State when they have a guy that can take the top off a of defense. 
and make you respect the home run ball, whatever you, whatever metaphor you want to use. Do they have a receiver that opposing safeties are going to have to respect? You know, I don't know that. I don't know that for sure. I, you know, we've talked about Anthony Gould. He's got a lot of speed, and we thought maybe he's the guy. We've we thought for several years that Josiah Irish might be that guy, and he, he hasn't quite proven that. But, and 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 the, the guy last spring that kind of was stepping up and, and showing in, 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 you know, in scrimmage situations quite a bit was Silas Bolden, who's Victor Bolden's brother, and he's, but he's 5'8". Um, hard to say. I, I don't know if they're going to have that guy that can just blow past Steve. I just think they're all, this is a very veteran group and they're going to have a lot of, they're going to have a lot of options. I mean, so much so that, you know, Smith has said that, you know, really deep in this position and there may be, you know, we're, we may have to figure out that there's some guys that might not get as many touches as, as, as you might think, because we just don't, you know, we don't have the, that many balls around. So we've got to figure out, you know, who, who, who those guys are, but, I think Tyjon Lindsay's set for a big year. He's, you know, he's a, he's a senior. He's he's been he's been itching to be the guy. I think he's I think he's in great shape. Harris Harrison's in his third year at Oregon State. I think he's he's ready to, ready to blossom. And then, like I said earlier about Luke Musgrave, I, I just think he's going to be the breakout guy on offense this year. If they if they decide they want to throw the ball at six six and with his speed. And his hands, I, I think he's going to be dangerous as a tight end threat. Yeah, I think they've got to get somebody that can hurt you deep in order to go from like a six-seven win team to maybe an eight-win team. I think that's the difference right there. And I think when you don't have that, it puts a lot of pressure on Chance Nolan on those intermediate routes. Uh, we saw defenders last year jumping those routes and. And I thought, gosh, if they had a guy that could stretch the defense a little bit, they'd be better off. Maybe you're right. Maybe it'll be gold. Uh, final question, Jonathan Smith. Um, we've seen him, I don't want to say more relaxed, but feels to me like, you know, the steps in progression at Oregon State went from, you know, just playing games and then trying to be competitive and then winning games and making a bowl game last year. Feels like there's another step here that he wants to take and maybe some more pressure that comes with it. How has he changed in your mind in the last couple of years? I don't know. I don't know if he's changed so much. I think he's just he's just pleased at how they've been able to build this program from virtually nothing, um, you know, to a team that, I mean, for the first time I've ever heard him say this, I, I think I, I'm pretty sure I heard him say it on your show on Friday or did you have him on Friday or Monday? Yeah, I can't remember. I have Friday. Friday. I yeah. listened on a podcast. He, he he mentioned the word Pac-12 championship game. Yep. I don't believe I've heard him say that before. So there's some confidence from him. Now, he, I mean, he knows that <laughs> they, they don't have a lot of room for – they don't have a lot of room for error, obviously, because they don't have, you know, four- and five-star guys sitting on the bench ready to play. So they need to, they need to have a little luck with the injuries um, at – particularly up front, if they can get Isaac Hodgins, if they can get Isaac Hodgins through camp and get him ready to be able to play this season, I think that would be huge. I just, there, there's just so many guys on this team that have been around the program for three and four years. 
So that's, you know, that's giving Jonathan some confidence. And I think he's going to be able to, I think there's things they're going to be able to do this year. They haven't been able to do in the past just because they've got veterans, particularly on defense. I think they're going to take, they'll take some chances. They haven't been able, they haven't been able to take in the past because they've got guys that have been playing in the program for so long. Nick Daschle, you're the best. Thank you for joining us. Um, I appreciate your time. All right. We'll see you. Thanks. There's Daschle. Good stuff on Oregon State. It does kind of feel like, I don't want to say do or die because that's not how it is for Oregon State, but it feels like if you're Oregon State, you're in a position now where USC hasn't quite got its footing. Kalen DeBoer at Washington, he just got here. Dan Lanning at Oregon, he got here. There are some programs that normally compete at the top half of the conference that are just trying to kind of get it going. And you have continuity, and you have a veteran team. And so I do think if you're Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, you kind of see this window of opportunity. that it, It's like a one-season thing here before Oregon, USC, Washington sort of get their feet underneath them. Uh, I, do, I do see Utah at the top of this conference, but I think there's a group of about five teams after Utah, and I'll include Oregon, UCLA, USC, Oregon State, and Washington State among those. There are about five teams that I think could finish in the two, three, four spots and you know make decent bowl games or rattle around a little bit or even depending on how they position this season – uh, get to play in Las Vegas for the conference championship against Utah, who I think will uh, end up with the best record in the conference. I think it's a big, big season for Oregon State and Jonathan Smith. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We're just talking about Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach. I asked him on Friday, Pac-12 Media Day in Los Angeles, about getting to the next level. He brought up 12 wins. I think we want to win the championship. We want to go to Vegas and and, and be in the Pac-12 championship game. Each year's new. We've made some real progress. Uh, We feel, you know, feel good about the progress made. We've got a lot left, and each week you got to play well to be able to win games. What I'm confident in saying is that each time we line up, we feel confident. If we play well, we can win, and we can win 12, 12 games or whatever it will take to get there. Um, but, again, what we, the progress we've made, it really means a, well, nothing for uh, this coming season until you start playing. It means nothing, but also we can see – like, you know, it's true. You go up a flight of stairs, the steps behind you don't really uh, factor into the steps ahead of you. But, frankly, you're not where you are if you didn't climb them. So, Jonathan Smith, let's let's give some credit where it's due. Uh, they went in year one from being non-competitive to year two to playing closer to year three to winning some games, enough games to get to a bowl game going, you know, 6-0 and at home. And now Jonathan Smith looking to take another step. I I disagree a little bit with Nick Daschle. I I have sensed a little bit of a change in Jonathan Smith. And I don't mean like his personality has changed or whatnot. But I just see him kind of, you know, Jed Fish had the same thing. Like Arizona's coach Jed Fish, they were terrible last year. And I told Jed Fish, you guys remind me of Oregon State in, you know, two, three years ago under Jonathan Smith. Like you were just in games and, you know, defense couldn't play. Not good enough to be on the field in a Pac-12. 
and then you know this year is about being more competitive and maybe next year is about hey can you get to five or six wins that's kind of the progression but once you get to six wins and make a bowl game like Oregon State did then it becomes all right how do you get from bowl eligible into all of a sudden competing for like one of the upper tier bowls in the Pac-12 not a playoff like if you go 12 and 0 you're making the playoff but n not a playoff in this case if you're Oregon State but, like, how do you get to, like, the Alamo Bowl? How do you get to, like, Vegas to play the conference championship game? And the answers to those things are you have to continue to progress. You have to win games on the road. That's what Oregon State didn't do a year ago. They were great at home. They were terrible on the road. They lost games on the road they should not have lost. They lost at Colorado. They should have won. They lost at Cal. They laid an egg. And those two games suddenly – if they win those two games, you're talking about the possibility for a nine-win season at Oregon State. And instead, they're sitting on the L.A. Bowl in a date with Utah State. I think there's a, there's a leap forward that is out there for Jonathan Smith and Oregon State. I'll be curious to see if they can take it. And I frankly think it, it isn't going to have to do with the offensive line. It isn't going to have to do with the running backs. I don't even think it has to do with the quarterbacks. I think it has to do with two, two things for Oregon State. One, can they find a receiver that can hurt teams deep? If they can, it's going to make everything else easier on offense, and I think Jonathan Smith and Brian Lindgren know what to do with that. Two, can they stop and other teams on offense and get off the field? They were much better last year than the year before, but there's still some room for growth there. I think Oregon State has got a lot to play for this season. Our big splash is coming up. I want you to leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I wrote today at johnconzano.com. I took a break from the Pac-12 stuff, and I wrote about Sister D. Sister Dolores, she passed away last November, diehard sports fan. Big-time sports fan. She became a friend of this show and a frequent emailer in my inbox. Uh, she died at the age of 94. And for people who knew Sister D, uh, Sister Dolores, uh, they knew that she was all about perseverance. Um, she and I became friends a couple decades ago. She wrote over the years. We spoke on the telephone a few times. But she worked for 38 years teaching uh, elementary school at St. Clair School in Portland. She lived up the hill from St. Clair at the uh, top of Southwest 17th Avenue. And she would make that walk. And when it was icy in the winter, she'd wrap her feet in chains before she came walking down that big hill. And she was big time on perseverance. It was her favorite word. And for uh, people out there that are listening that knew Sister Dolores or maybe were in her classes, you know she taught the word perseverance as one of her spelling words. It was important to her that kids were resilient, that you had metal, that you knew how to deal with adversity. And she loved sports because of that. Um, she passed away last November and late November. And I intended in November and December to write about it, and it got away from me. I don't know why I woke up today, and I was like, I need to, I owe her a column. I need one more. 
And so I sat down, and if you uh, if you subscribe at johnconzano.com, you got it in your email inbox this morning shortly before 9 o'clock. You got my full column on Sister Dolores and why she's important and why it matters in the context of the Pac-12 conference and the NFL and Deshaun Watson and broken rosters and players battling injuries. And, you know, Sister Dolores had something to offer, and I hope you read it. It's at johnconzano.com right now if you want to check it out. That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know about. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, the big news, the San Diego Padres finalized a trade for Washington Nationals slugger Juan Soto. They got the superstar outfielder and first baseman Josh Bell from the Nationals. The price was far from cheap. Got a bunch of prospects, got a bunch of pitchers, got a bunch of players. The Padres, though, trying to uh, execute a deal that would put them in position to compete for it all. Soto's a two-time All-Star. He won the home run derby and uh, gives the Padres a historically talented 23-year-old hitter who compares favorably at this point of his career with a lot of Hall of Famers. He will uh, benefit from joining a lineup that already has Fernando Tatis Jr. and Manny Machado in it. And so the Padres making a move with Juan Soto, who uh, 21 home runs, 46 RBI this season, gives the Padres another ambassador and another good hitter in their lineup. Keep an eye on it. The Padres trying to win right now. Coming up, top of the hour, John Wilner will be joining us. Yes, Wilner and I have lost, launched a podcast. It's called Konzano and Wilner. You should be subscribed to it on Apple Podcast and SoundCloud and everywhere else. We're going to talk about the Pac-12. What are the new developments? What is the timeline with the media rights deal? And what the hell do we have to talk about on a podcast? Wilner will be joining us coming up. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. I appreciate that you're here. We got one hour in the books. Wilner is the best, so I want you to leave it here as we talk Pac-12 like nobody else can talk Pac-12. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News coming up. Sean's getting him on the phone right now. We'll talk about the Pac-12 conference. We'll talk about Media Day. We'll talk about this blasted conundrum that uh, we uh, find ourselves in in covering this conference. Is uh, uh, you know we are, are beginning to see that this is going to be more of a marathon than a sprint for the Pac-12. I want to play a couple clips while we're getting Wilner on the phone to kind of set the stage for our conversation. But let's start with Chip Kelly's comments. I asked Chip Kelly when he found out about UCLA's move to the Big Ten. Like, not when it was first brought up, but when he found out it was happening. Where was he? Here's what UCLA's coach said. I was at a charity golf tournament in New Hampshire. Who are you playing with? 
Um, I was playing with a former Nike guy, Gary DeCefano, who's a former vice president at Nike. That's a University of New Hampshire graduate. Gary was in our group. Sean McDonald, the former head coach of the University of New Hampshire, was in our group. And then a good friend of ours, Matty Cassano, was in our group. And then the group directly behind us was Ryan Day, yeah. who was playing with uh, his father-in-law, Stan Spiro, who was one of my high school coaches and teachers. And a bunch of guys who just got together. So I found out on 14. Yeah, we're in a weird world, aren't we? It was. And yeah. then, you know, it's going to happen in an hour and make sure you don't say anything. I was like, well, Ryan's behind me. <laughs> right. And by the time we got to 16, I think everybody in the world knew. And people were asking me, and I was like, I was telling up to 10, and I, I don't know what's going on. So. There's Chip Kelly talking about it. Uh, it's evident, like Scott Frost, we later found out, the Nebraska head football coach, friends of Chip Kelly, was on the phone with Ryan Day. So they found out simultaneously. Meanwhile, uh, Lincoln Riley at USC told media on Friday that he was alerted when he was hired. He was told that this could be a possibility. Now, I think there's going to be some fallout, and there's going to be some blowback towards Carol Folt, the president at USC, as uh, you know, we talk about what did USC know and there is a report out there that Folt is the president who shut down Pac-12 expansion talk. As the Pac-12 was talking about adding Baylor and Houston, Texas Tech, some other teams, that it was Folt a couple of years ago who said, no, 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 I don't even know why we're talking about expansion. We shouldn't be having this conversation, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out USC maybe had one foot out the door while it was doing that. Conflict of interest or just shady, or is there a potential litigation that could involve Carol Folt and USC? I don't know. But I'm awfully interested in the timeline of all this, when it happened, how it happened, why it happened, and what's going to happen next. I do think, and I wrote this Monday and Sunday, and so I want you to pay careful attention to UCLA, more so than USC. On Sunday, I wrote a column at johnconzano.com that laid out a possibility that the Pac-12 conference may be angling for UCLA's return to the Pac-12. I thought it was really interesting that George Klyovkov was collegial towards UCLA in particular while he was taking shots at the Big Ten and the Big 12. Now, I get it. The Big 12's been launching grenades. The Big Ten stole two teams. But I think it's interesting that Klyovkov went out of his way, uh, both during his address in front of all the media and in the one-on-one that we did, he went out of his way to make sure we all knew that UCLA was welcomed back with open arms in the event that, you know, that they wanted to reverse course. And I, I don't think for a second, mostly, I'm like 98% sure, that UCLA is probably not coming back. But consider that the UC system and the regents of the UC system may have something to say. They may hassle UCLA over their departure. Consider that you may have blowback from athletes in Olympic sports who are saying, hey, I don't really want to travel all that way. I don't know why they signed on to do this. This is a football, basketball decision. You may have some reservations there. And I thought George Klyovkov during media day presented – um, a nice case in which, you know, I thought, I thought he was doing a little propaganda work when he raised the idea that there are a whole bunch of alumni that 
are unhappy with UCLA joining the Big Ten Conference. And I thought that was very strategic of George Klyovkov because here's the scenario. I believe that the Pac-12 has asked its media partners, specifically ESPN, to present a valuation for media rights that includes UCLA as part of the picture. Because I think they want to go to UCLA and they want to go, look, we know that you've, uh, you're moving to the Big Ten, but here's what we can offer you if you stay behind because nothing's done until 2024. So I asked Klyovkov specifically twice now, you know, do have you asked your media partners for evaluation that includes UCLA? He refuses to answer that question. I've asked him twice. And I'm told by people in the media world it would be uh, really foolish if he didn't. So I do think they are asking ESPN to provide them a number that involves UCLA. Now, if that number can get towards 60 or maybe even $70 million annually in distributions. Would it give UCLA pause, given all those other factors, the regents, the alumni, the travel? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But if you're George Klyovkov, that's a question you've got to ask UCLA. And I think that's why he's being collegial towards the Bruins. Hey, open arms if they want to come back. But I think secretly he's pissed. They, You know, he was backstabbed. Let's talk all about that with John Wilner, San Jose Mercury News, friend of this show and co-host of the Kanzano and Wilner podcast that has debuted on Apple, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and other places. John Wilner, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Let's talk Klyovkov's performance. Uh, how do you grade his performance at Media Day on Friday? You know, I thought he did pretty well, but you you got to understand, I, I kind of feel like you can only grade somebody on a relative basis, right? And he's playing from a position of weakness, given what happened to his conference uh, a month ago. So he had to be, uh, you know, proactive, be bold, present a united front, an aggressive posture, right? Uh, and he did that. I thought it was interesting that in his prepared remarks, he was fairly diplomatic. It was only when the Q&A began that he got feisty. And I think that that probably is a more palatable approach than getting feisty during your prepared remarks, right? I don't know if you regret saying what he said about the Big 12 in terms of having decided if we're going to go shopping there. Uh, he seemed to try to walk it back a little bit when he explained it a minute later. But, you know, I would presumably say, you know, his leverage or his conference's lack of leverage right now, I think he probably did pretty well. John, you know, you go into this media day, he takes a couple shots, mostly did it in his Q&A. Why do you think it happened in his Q&A and not his prepared remarks? I, I just think it can, it can come off a, a little bit more aggressive, uh, sarcastic, feisty, if you're responding to, the, to a question as opposed to remarks that you have weeks to prepare, right? I mean, they worked on his speech, I'm sure, for a week or two, uh, especially given how important it was and all the, the backdrop to it. So, you know, that's, you know, you can just be a little bit more accepting, I think, of something somebody says when it's uh, a response to a question versus something they, they, you know, created well in advance. The 
teams in this conference, you know, it feels like Utah's got its stuff together. They're well positioned. After that, I think we could see a whole bunch of teams winning seven, eight games, six, seven, eight games. Did you come away from media day with your mind changed about any specific program or maybe who the contenders are and are not? Not really, because I kind of feel like, you know, everybody's putting on their best front media day, right? I mean, you, you go there and you listen to the coaches and you listen to the players and everybody's a contender. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I kind of tune out a lot of that stuff, to be honest with you. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, to me, for, for my purposes, you know, some, what, what the schools are saying about their, what they think about their seasons coming up, you know, that's only one of the stories that was worth, you know, pursuing on, on Friday in Los Angeles, right? The, the future of the league is at, in the balance at this point, too. And I spent, you know, to be honest, I spent quite a bit of time pursuing that situation as opposed to digging deep into uh, prospects for the upcoming fall. How long can this stretch out, this media rights question, the question about who's with the conference, who's not going to be there in 2024? Well, I think that it's possible it could stretch out till September or October, right? I mean, typically, negotiating a new media rights deal takes many months. Uh, the Big Ten's been doing theirs for like six months. So, uh, and especially if part of, if expansion ends up being part of the Pac-12's calculation, I think it could go on for a long time. I, I don't think it's going to end in the next couple of days. Uh, at the end of this 30-day exclusive negotiating period. And part of that's because, you know, everybody's waiting on the Big Ten, right? The Big Ten still has not closed their deal with Fox and whoever else. And so nobody knows, Pac-12 and the networks don't know who's got how much money available, who's got which broadcast windows available. Everybody is waiting around in the Big Ten, and I think that what happens with the Pac-12 won't kind of unfold in a real serious way until the Big Ten has finished its negotiations, and that could take several more weeks. Yeah, I keep hearing they're waiting for the Big Ten. They want to see what the Big Ten sets the market at. And I also think they're trying to figure out who has dollars to spend who didn't get to participate yep. with the Big Ten and the SEC. Yep. Do you have a sense now on who those players might be? I think that it's Probably CBS, NBC, ESPN, Fox are, you know, I don't know. It's possible one of the digital, big digital players, Apple or Amazon, is involved. I don't know. But I think it's a, it's a good bet that ESPN, Fox for sure, and then CBS, because CBS needs content to replace the SEC, which it lost to Disney. And, you know, is NBC looking around for some kind of, doubleheader partner for a Notre Dame game, right? I mean, NBC would love to have a Notre Dame game uh, on with a Big Ten game right before or right after. That's you know, plays right to their Midwestern fan base uh, or viewership audience. So I would list the, the con contenders as ESPN, Fox, uh, CBS, and NBC, and then it's probably the next tier is probably the Amazon and Apples. Who's the best quarterback in the Pac-12 next season? Uh, best quarterback, Tanner McKee, Stanford, is probably my pick. I, I think, we'll put it this way, I think he will come out of the season as the top pro prospect. I don't necessarily think he will have 
the best season because of the team around him. But uh, I think when all is said and done come November 30th or whatever, you know, that Tanner McKee will be viewed as the, as the best passer in the league. John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News, co-host of the Conzano and Wilner podcast, which you always should be subscribed to. Wilner, why are you doing a podcast? Well, I think we have got a lot to uh, to contribute to the public the public space. You know, we got a lot that we can inform people, we can entertain people. I got a lot in my head that I never get to publish that I would like to talk to you about. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be fun, and uh, I think that people are going to learn something and they're going to be entertained. I agree with that. I think it's all going to be fun. And I also I... think that, you know, as a, as a reporter, you know, I think you got there's a duty to try to, you know, inform the public record and keep the, the narrative, you know, down a straight path. You know, there's a, especially right now with all the realignment stuff going on. There's a lot of smoke, as you know, and I think that there's a certain duty where you got to say, look, this is, this is a reasonable conclusion, but this is preposterous, and you're wasting your time thinking about it. Yeah, let's, let's go through some of those things because, you know, even uh, George Kliofkov came on this show Friday, and he said, hey, look, you know, we've got national media members who are retweeting burner accounts and using stuff in their coverage that isn't substantiated. Um, I think it's really interesting times, but I found some of the same. I was deeply frustrated by some of the stuff I saw reported, and I'm like, as I start to run some of that stuff down, I'm told immediately there's nothing to it, and yet it's out there. Um, how difficult is it for people right now to get good information? Well, it's hard. For, it's hard for the fans. It's hard for reporters, right? Realignment is the hardest topic to cover as a member of the media, especially if you want to be a responsible journalist about it. And the reason it's so tough is because of two things. One, the circle of people who really know what's going on is incredibly small. And the other thing is the layer, it's very complex, right? Because it's not just about a coaching decision or a rec which school a recruit's going to pick, right? There's so many factors that go into realignment between the TV, the media valuations and the institutional fit and the calculation with your Olympic sports and what your trustees and your regents think and your big donors. I mean, it's, it's this huge universe of issues that you've got to tackle. And so a media member who's, who's used to just going to one source to get all their information about this aspect of a team or, or that aspect of a team, well, that source doesn't know all the different factors that are going into realignment. So it's very hard to report accurately, and there has certainly been a ton of stuff. Look, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if the Pac-12 is going to survive or not. I, I have made the Pac-12 survival a four-point favorite over Pac-12 extinction. So I, I think that there's a better if there's a better case, it's more likely than not that the conference is going to survive. But I, I don't know that it's uh, guaranteed by any stretch. But I do know that some of the stuff that's reported out there is complete nonsense. Uh, it's either factually inaccurate or it's a complete misinterpretation of you know what's going on. Yeah, and and look, the big factors that go into that, true or false? Let's play a little game here in whether or not the Pac-12 survives. 
Uh, Oregon and Washington, are they big factors in whether or not the Pac-12 survives? Huge factors. Uh, I would say that Oregon and Washington are probably the number one and well, I can't say it like that. Let me rephrase. The biggest factor is what the Big Ten does. If the Big Ten doesn't come get any of the Pac-12 schools, then Oregon and Washington don't have any place to go, right? So that makes it much more likely the Pac-12 is going to stay intact. That's why I think the whole, this whole thing starts with the, with the Big Ten. But certainly there's a lot more value for the collective if Oregon and Washington are involved. And I don't think Oregon and Washington want to go to the Big Ten, a Big 12. I think that that is a last resort option for both of those schools. They don't want to be sending their Olympic sports to Waco or to Morgantown, right? They would like, they can't go to the Big Ten. They want to be a part of a, a reconfigured Pac-12. Give me an idea of why the Big 12 thinks it's more valuable than the Pac-12. That is a, that is a real interesting question to me. Like, where, how do they believe that? Well, I think they have, you know, and I don't think it is um, necessarily the wrong belief in some regards, right? It's possible that the Big 12, well, first of all, they believe that they have more stability, right? Their schools aren't going anywhere, whereas the Pac-12 could lose teams to the Big 10. In some ways, that's a little nuts, right? The Big 12 is is making its case as the stronger league because it doesn't have any schools that the Big Ten would want, right? It's like we're all second tier, and that makes us more stable. Uh, and that's true. The Big Ten and the SEC are not going to poach anybody in the Big 12, whereas they could poach, the Big Ten could poach Oregon and Washington and Stanford. Uh, but the other piece of the valuation is, you know, I – Maybe they're, they've got a little bit more media value, but is it enough? This is what I keep getting back to. Do or Does the Big 12 offer enough increase in, in dollars to justify everything else that goes along with joining that conference, right? I mean, if they're going to say, look, we're, here's, here's $40 million a year. Pac-12 can only offer you $35 million a year. We're offering you $40 million a year. Okay, is that $5 million enough to justify being part of the Big 12 and the travel and all the, all the stuff that goes into it, no. $5 million difference is not going to – that's not going to catch you up to the SEC and the Big 10. That's, that's, that's on the margins. And so that's why I think that the best chances that the Pac-12 is going to end up staying intact because it's not a big enough difference in money to go to the Big 12. I love it. Wilner, we'll get into more of this on our podcast. Kanzano and Wilner, find the podcast, SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get a podcast. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, we'll begin dropping uh, full episodes here in the coming uh, days, so I want you to be on top of that. John Wilner, thanks for giving us some of your time. Thanks a lot, my friend. I appreciate it. There he is, at Wilner Hotline on Twitter. The best quarterback in the Pac-12 conference. I disagree with Wilner. But, and I also disagree with you, likely. I'll tell you why next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I got a chance uh, during last week's media day to talk to all the QBs, Tanner McKee, Cam Ward, Cam Rising, 
Caleb Williams at USC, among them. I got to say, uh, I left my interview, and I said this yesterday, with Caleb Williams a little underwhelmed. I think statistically he'll probably be fine. Lincoln Riley's offense is made for quarterbacks. But there's just something not right going on with Caleb Williams. I I don't know if it's that he's been in L.A. and he's loving being in L.A. and he loves him some Caleb Williams. Or if there's a bigger issue there. But I would... I would caution people who are looking at Caleb Williams as the second coming of Patrick Mahomes to allow Caleb Williams to play some games and prove it. I, there's just something that's a little bit off. And so I agree. Like John Wilner, I asked him in the last segment who's going to be the best quarterback in the conference, and he talked about the top-rated pro prospect. And he mentioned Tanner McKee, who we had on the show, who is getting into the private equity world. And that's what he's doing in, as his side hustle, because that's what Stanford kids do apparently in the summer. But, uh, but uh, I just, I there's something about Cam rising as a leader at Utah and the team that's built around him that I think positions him well to be either first team or second team All Conference. And and the guy's a leader and a really good competitor. He's just a competitor, and you can see it. And then the second guy, Cam Ward, Washington State's quarterback, don't count him out either. He is, uh, as he said, playing in the offense that he played it in uh, Incarnate Word University. And he transferred to Washington State. Eric Morris, the offensive coordinator at Incarnate Word, is coming with him to Washington State. Here's Cam Ward talking about the adjustment from where he played a year ago to where he's going to play this season. So, you know, it's not really big of adjustment uh, playbook-wise uh, for me. You know, we've got the same signals, mm-hmm. same formations, everything the exact same from what it was at UIW. So really just getting to know my teammates a little bit more than what I already do and, you know, just have that team camaraderie uh, come September 3rd and we're just ready to play. Look, ready to play, and he talked about getting out and throwing with guys. I, I left my interview with Cam Ward going, this guy's going to be a problem for Pac-12 defenses. But I left my interview with Caleb Williams wondering, is he going to be the kind of leader that USC needs on the field? I think he'll put up numbers, but is he really going to be the best quarterback in the conference? I think we're all looking at the hype, and we're all supposing, we're looking at Lincoln Riley's offense, and we're supposing that Caleb Williams is going to be great. And he might be. He might be. I'm not afraid to be wrong here. But if I'm buying stock, uh, I'm buying Cam Ward, and uh, I'm going to roll with that. Tell me, guys, first team, second team quarterbacks next season, who do you like? Yeah, I think if we're going first team, second team, I think Cam Rising uh, is going to be first team. I think a lot of that is going to be just because Utah is going to be so successful in the conference. I don't necessarily think he's the best quarterback. I do yeah. agree with Wilno that I think Tanner McGee is probably – the most uh, potential for a pro prospect this season is he could go to the NFL because he is a big, strong quarterback. But Giant guy. Giant yeah. guy, yeah. So I, I I agree with you. I think Cam Rising is probably first team, but I'm with you. When you asked this question, my first thought was Cam Ward, and it was that quote right there. He said it's the same signals, same offense, and you look at what he did at Cardinal Ward. I know it's UIW, but 71 touchdowns, 14 interceptions in two seasons. 
He's going to have better athletes at Washington State. The offense is going to be built around him. He's going to be comfortable. I, I agree with you. I'm buying stock in Cam Ward as well. I think Washington State could be a solid team. And with Caleb Williams, I think he's going to be a third-team uh, quarterback because I'm with you. I don't think USC is as good, and they're getting a little too much hype right now. I think they're more of an 8-7 win team, maybe a 9-win team at best. So I think Caleb Williams, maybe he's going to put up some numbers, but it's not necessarily going to show up in you know for the first, second team. Wow, I uh, I really think the the obvious answer is is Caleb Williams, and if it's not Caleb Williams, it's Cam Rising, and I, I really like Washington State's quarterback too. Um, I definitely left that interview the other day with you, John. Um, really liking uh, Cameron Ward, but with Caleb Williams, I mean, you think about what he did in his freshman year, and like, sure, there's some substance to the um, some of the backlash of what he did his freshman year. Like, he did play very poorly against Baylor. Uh, and Iowa State, and he only played a couple of, he played, you know, half dozen games last year. So I still think that, you know, this is a guy who took Spencer Rattler's job when Spencer Rattler is supposed to be the second coming of, you know, Baker Mayfield, basically, at Oklahoma. He took his job as a true freshman. He was a very highly touted recruit. You know, he, he, like, USC was a school that had Keaton Slovis, it had Jackson Dart, and yet Lincoln Riley chose Caleb Williams. So I think there's there's a lot of signs that Caleb Williams is going to be a star here in his sophomore year. I mean, he was already really effective in his freshman year. You think about who he's throwing to, too. He's got probably yeah. the best receiver core, receiving core in the entire country uh, with Jordan Addison and Mario Williams and some of the other guys they have down there. So I, I think it's Caleb Williams, but I'd, I'd be willing to accept Cameron Rising uh, arguments as well. And when it comes to Tanner McKee, I think Tanner McKee is kind of like the the Justin Herbert, like uh, from his senior year, like the, the best NFL prospect, but maybe not the best college quarterback. You have to remember Herbert was a third team uh, Pac-12 guy that year. Seven transfers will start likely in the Pac-12 this and, season. And John, where are we putting Chance Nolan? He was an honorable mention all Pac-12 last season. We didn't even mention him. We, you know, he's probably sixth or seventh in the league. Do you think he has a chance to be, you know, a first or second team all, all league quarterback? Oregon State would have to be a tremendous surprise. I, uh, you know, just to your point about Cam Rising, there's, you know, he is he the most talented NFL ready quarterback? No, but he's a guy who took his team to a Rose Bowl. We know he can do it. He's already done it. Chance Nolan's going to have to be that kind of guy, but I don't think he has the weapons to wow people. And I think Oregon State's going to be known for running the football, but. Uh, it was interesting. I I sat. I had coffee with Jaden Grant early in the summer, late in the spring. He and I got together and we just talked. And I said to him, "I think you need a quarterback." And he said, "I don't think so." And I said, "I think you need a quarterback." He goes, "I think we got one." And I thought he was talking about maybe one of the young guys. And in the course of our conversation, he kind of steered me back to look. He goes. We don't need a guy that's going to put the offense on his back, throw the ball 38 times a game. He goes, we need a guy who's going to make plays and hurt defenses that come up and try to stop our run game. And if Nolan can do that, he'll get some consideration. But I think the ceiling for him would be like, could he make second team? If Oregon State's surprised, let's say Oregon State wins nine games. They come in second. They play in the Pac-12 title game. They're a huge surprise. I think Chance Nolan in that scenario would get consideration. Yeah. And, Sean, I don't think you're crazy for picking Caleb Williams. He's got the receivers. Hell, you might throw for 2,000 yards in that offense with those guys. <laughs> Just throwing five-yard hitches to those guys and let them run. But I, there's something about the kid. And, granted, look, maybe it's like, like I've been at this a long time. I've been around David Carr. I've been around Justin Herbert and Marcus Mariota. I've been around Derek Anderson at Oregon State, and I covered the NFL, and there's something missing 
with Caleb Williams. And to me, it, it's more of a leadership flaw than it is a talent flaw. So he may come in, and he may have tremendous numbers, but the team splinters around him, or maybe he just loses a game or two he shouldn't have lost. It could be that kind of year for him. But he could have all the hype in the world around him. But there was just something in, in our interview. He's, you know, I asked him about the sports he played as a kid. You remember what he said, you guys? Individual sports, swimming. Yeah, it was, it was in all individual sports. And I was like, he was holding that up as like some great thing. And I was thinking, do you know what it is to be on a team? Do you know what it is to galvanize people around you, to be part of something bigger than yourself? And those are the questions I wonder about with Caleb Williams. And I will not be surprised Like if this is like an Aesop's fable for USC this season. Tremendous talent, great receivers, Lincoln Riley, all the hype, the resources of USC. And, uh, you know, to your point, Stephen, yesterday, let's just say uh, week two they're playing Stanford, they get punched in the mouth. Week four they're playing Oregon State, they get beat again. Those those early season games for USC are going to be interesting because if I'm playing USC, I want to play them in the first six games because I don't want them to get momentum and confidence and figure out roles and solve the culture issues. No, no, no. I want to get them where they're trying to figure out who they are. And I think Stanford and Oregon State have an opportunity early in the year to maybe hurt USC in a way that some teams later in the year are going to regret they didn't have. And Caleb Williams, he was the number one uh, high school quarterback, but there wasn't any pressure when we went to Oklahoma because, as Sean said, they had Spencer Rattler, and he was so bad that they put him in there thinking, you know, he can't be worse than this guy, and then he exploded. But as you talked about, John, yesterday, you know, he had a couple games at the end of the season where he didn't play very well. So I'm with you. I, it's going to be interesting to see how they react in the first couple weeks, you know, when they play Stanford, when they play Oregon State, on the road because you know those two teams are going to be physical with USC. That's how they beat the Trojans. Uh, so Oregon State beat them last year is being physical, and Stanford has always played well against the Trojans. So, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how he reacts in those first couple uh, Pac-12 conference games. I, I yeah. just think you look at Lincoln Riley's track record in the past five years. It's Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, and then it was a half season of Spencer Rattler. And then I remember Spencer Rattler being okay, and then Lincoln Riley was like, no, we have this awesome freshman. Let's put in Caleb Williams. And, you know, he had his highs and lows as a freshman. But I think you look at Lincoln Riley's track record, it's it's unbelievable with quarterbacks. And now you give Caleb Williams uh, another year of experience and you give him the Blitnikoff Award winner. I just, yeah. I believe me, I'm not <laughs> I'm not a USC guy, but I, I expect fireworks from the, down there. I'm just, it, I'm super high it, on them. It may happen. You know, it's like, I, I look at his offense a little bit like Mike Leach. Like, there were some guys that played for Mike Leach and still do at Mississippi State that are going to pile up numbers because that system is designed to have you come out and throw 500 yards. You know, it's like you're not going to have that opportunity if you're at Oregon State. And so it may be statistically that Caleb Williams gets it done, but keep an eye or keep it in the back of your mind as you're watching USC this season. Are, are there going to be a game or two where the lack of leadership or maybe a deficiency in Caleb Williams' leadership's genes end up being uh, coming back to bite him. Because I, I talked to Cameron Ward, and I went, damn, that guy's a leader. I talked to Cam Risen, I said, that guy's a leader. And I talked to Caleb Williams, and I went, eh, maybe. Like, he's going to pile up numbers and get a bunch of endorsements. But I don't know if he's the guy that's going to pull that team together. Leave it here. Get the BFT. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. 
We'll play some Punch It Audio coming up in the next segment. That's my way to signal to Steven, not so subtly, that I'm going to play Punch It Audio in the next segment. Message received loud and clear. <laughs> Love that. Uh, Pac-12 has named uh, their woman of the year. I don't know the Pac-12 did this, but Stanford's Brooke Forty was named woman of the year. She's a swimmer at Stanford. She is a, a really good swimmer, won a silver medal at the Tokyo Games. She also has a master's degree in epidemiology and a 4.2 GPA. She also happens to be the daughter of Pat Forty, the sports journalist who has been on the show. So uh, congrats to Brooke Forty. I tweeted out that must make Pat dad of the year if she's woman of the year. And Pat very wisely showed me how smart he is, said no, the distinction belongs to her mother. She's mother of the year. So the Forty family celebrating that. Really cool that they do that. Oregon State had uh, nominated a rower named Sierra Bishop. And uh, so that's cool. Um, I don't believe Oregon nominated anyone. I don't know why. But also um, uh, it's interesting that Oregon State did not put their gymnastics star up for woman of the year. I don't know why. So we'll settle on that. If we're if this show is going to name a woman of the year in sports, guys, do we have who is our woman of the year in sports? Normally, I would default to one of the Williams sisters, but they didn't play so well in the last year. So, like, who are we talking about when we're talking about who are the great female athletes that are out there right now competing at, you know, the highest levels? Sabrina. Sabrina comes to mind. Uh, are we talking about like region? So you you no. said the Williams sisters. So you're talking like national. Nationally. Okay, I thought Planet you meant like Earth. state of Oregon. You know, first athletes that come to mind. Uh, I'm telling you, Sydney McLaughlin. She did really special things at the World Championships, and I think that she, uh, you know, my mind obviously resorts to track. Um, yeah. You know, the Williams sisters, obviously. Um, yeah, you know, there's obviously some world class gymnasts that you have to you have to think about. I don't know. I think Jade Carey at Oregon State yeah. should have been nominated. They should have nominated her at least. Don't you right? think, like, she's she's kind of the big name? She always kind of gets the press. They wanted to maybe recognize someone else. Maybe. I don't know if they want to win the damn thing, though. That's pretty hard to, like, how would you take somebody who won an Olympic gold medal and not nominate them for Woman of the Year in the conference? Like, come on, you're speaking the language of the people at the conference level who vote on these things. So, would love to ask Oregon State. Well, you know, not that the person they nominated wasn't deserving of being nominated, but you know, if you're in this to win it, why not? All right, Punch It Audio is coming up. We'll have the best sound from all around. Ian Rappaport talking about the NFL. Adam Schefter talking about the NFL. Plus uh, Jeff Passan in Major League Baseball talking about everything that's gone on. We have all that and more as part of Punch It Audio. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Happy hour coming up, 5 o'clock, top of the hour. Hope you're enjoying your day out there. 
I'm clinging to summer with two hands. Like, literally, the kids are, uh, you know, in other states are already talking about going back to school. And our kids are like, oh, we got to do back-to-school shopping. And I was like, what? I'm hanging on to summer. That's what I'm doing. Punch it audio. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Miami Dolphins penalized by the NFL. They lose some draft picks. Owner gets suspended and fined $1.5 million. Ian Rappaport talking about just how bad it is. Was it really that bad, Ian Rappaport? Punch it. As far as the tampering, this is the most egregious tampering that I'll just speak for myself here that I can remember in, in 10 years. It is blatant. It is, you know, firsthand knowledge of the owner going after the greatest quarterback we've ever seen and Sean Payton while both are employed, both share the same agent, all parties participating. It is honestly unbelievable um, that all this is true and happened we've never seen it before so the penalties to lose a, a first round pick and a future third round pick I mean that's that's what the end million and a half dollars and for Beal a, a fine as well but those are I guess significant in uh, when it comes to football but these the way that the Dolphins simply pretended the rules did not exist um, is mind-boggling um, and it certainly is a significant significant a uh, day for the NFL. Significant day for the NFL, but also a reminder, look, professional sports, they have rules. They have rules for the teams. There's no tampering. Owners shouldn't be talking to players like Tom Brady who are under contract for with another team. Miami Dolphins broke the rules, and the NFL punished them for it. John, shouldn't, that, the, shouldn't yeah. these teams know better? Like, all these teams cheat, all these teams tamper. How can you get caught so badly? What does that say about the Dolphins organization? Yeah, it's a it's a big red flag, and I and I always say stuff like this, like all of it is symptomatic, right? If if the Dolphins are having these issues off the field, brace yourself for what we're going to see on the field. I do think that while you have parity that is created in the NFL, or at least they're trying to create parity with the draft and with a hard salary cap and no tampering rules, uh, the winners and losers are often in two camps and i'm not i don't think anybody after what we learned today is going to put the miami dolphins in the winner category they may win some games but they can't truly contend because they can't get out of their own way they're sloppy here's rapaport talking about the tanking scandal punch it we'll start with the tanking allegations that former head coach brian flores made and you know as the report states uh, the players played hard they did not try to lose and he actually commended Brian Flores for keeping this team together and keeping them from essentially ignoring the words of owner Stephen Ross. So basically what this report states is that the words were spoken and nobody listened to them. They kept playing, but also noting that words are important. They matter. The context matters, and it could uh, lead the team to go basically the wrong way toward tanking if another owner or if Stephen Ross uh, ends up doing this again. So it's not exactly and exoneration i would say it is simply saying that owner stephen ross said it but maybe not in the context uh that would necessitate a penalty for this and that the team played hard regardless that is 
significant and interesting with regards just to the tanking. Yeah, look, when you talk about tanking, I think it's really hard to prove it even though we know it exists. There are a lot of things like that in the world, but tanking is one of them. I think the NFL had a much easier time with tampering, obviously, but the Miami Dolphins, no doubt, did what a lot of teams have done. I don't necessarily think that's a bad, uh, you know, you don't want teams intentionally trying to lose games, but there's ways to do it in which uh, you come off as saying, look, we want to play young guys. We don't want to get people hurt. We're looking, we're thinking about the future. Teams say that stuff all the time. Jeff Passan talking about Major League Baseball trade action. Punch it. This is very simply the largest trade package we've ever seen for an individual player. The amount of talent going back to the Washington Nationals matches the amount of talent going to the San Diego Padres for Juan Soto. They're getting Mackenzie Gore, a left-hander. They're getting Robert Castle, an outfielder, C.J. Abrams, shortstop, Harlan Susana, a right-handed pitcher, 18 years old, throws 100 miles per hour. James Wood, second-round pick last year, fantastic talent, 6'7", 240 pounds, the biggest power perhaps in the minor leagues. When the Washington Nationals set out to trade Juan Soto after he rejected their 15-year, $440 million contract offer, they were looking for talent. And the San Diego Padres from the beginning had more talent that they were willing to give than any other team, and that is why this deal got done. Deal got done, too, because you had uh, the ticking clock that was the expiration of uh, Juan Soto's happiness in Washington. You got a franchise there in the Nationals that may be for sale in the short term. There's some talk about that. And the Padres, meanwhile, look, they've, they've developed the assets in their farm system. They've done a nice job. The Padres back in the day, they weren't a proud franchise, but they have emerged as a franchise that is playing at a high level, has developed good young talent, and now in the case of Juan Soto, has put him in the same lineup as Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, that is a that is a franchise that knows what the hell it's doing. Finally, let's go back to media day. George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, Speaking about the Big 12 Conference and the attempts that the Big 12 has made to poach and disrupt the Pac-12, here's George K. Punch it. You know, at some point you get tired of people trying to destabilize your conference and you got to hit back a little bit. And listen, I think in the grand scheme of things, having a healthy Big 12 and a healthy Pac-12 would be good. You know, to have both those in the Power Five and to have those votes in the room would be helpful. Um, at the same time, you know, we've been taking shots for the last four weeks, and I was just tired of it. Hey, and it showed. George Klyovkov was frustrated. He was pointed. He launched some grenades back at the Big 12 Conference. And frankly, I think that part of his act on Media Day went a long way towards making Pac-12 fans feel like there was an adult in the room who was speaking on their behalf. I don't know if it was necessarily everything he needed to do, it doesn't shift the narrative for the conference long-term. They still need to come up with a pretty impressive media rights deal or they're going to get left behind. But at least right now, the narrative has shifted some. And I also thought he made an interesting comment about how Big 12 people are texting and reaching out to Pac-12 people. And George Kiyofkov went out of his way to say, I've seen 
every one of those messages. I'm, I, I, I was, I kind of gathered that that wasn't intended for all of us. It was intended to let the Big 12 know that their efforts to disrupt the Pac-12 were not working. That's punch it audio. It's the best sound from all around. The NFL and Major League Baseball dominating today's headlines. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Coming up, the five at five, five big stories. We've been digging deep for some new stuff. We've got it. Uh, Also, I'll give you a preview for the rest of the week. And I'll tell you what I think the biggest story of the fall is going to be in our region. Not just Pac-12 related, but what's the biggest sports story of the fall? To me, it's a no-brainer, and it's on the horizon. So I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT. I appreciate that you're here statewide listening on the network. Uh, Lock it in. The 5 at 5 is coming up next on the BFT Radio Network. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Make sure you're subscribed and reading me at johnconzano.com. You'll get it uh, delivered to your email inbox in real time as news breaks, as things happen. It's there for you at your convenience. We're going to play Punch It Audio here coming up. Excuse me, 5 at 5. My mind's on Punch It Audio still. What's going on? We're going to play the 5 at 5 coming up. And uh, later in the week, we've got a all-new, but not really new, benchmark that will be making a debut, but we already used it. On Friday, we will be playing, uh, you know, What's Your Peeve on Friday. We talk about things on this show, and then the very astute sales staff that is listening goes, you know what, that should be, somebody would want to sponsor that thing. And so they are uh, sponsoring, going to welcome an all-new sponsor who's coming in, who's sponsoring the uh, What's Your Peeve segment that is coming up uh, on on uh, Friday. So we're going to do that on Friday, and it'll be a lot of fun to see and uh, hear from uh, people that are calling in. So if you have something that happens to you during the week that that bothers you or gives you a peeve, uh, coming up uh, this Friday, What's Your Peeve? will be brought to you by Revolution Dental Implant Center. A smile revolution going on, and they have a one-day solution. So uh, I like that. If your peeve is that you can't get good dental care, come Friday, Revolution Dental Implant Center will be uh, sponsoring What's Your Peeve? So there you go. I love that. I love that the synergy that is going on there. So in the end, that's what's happening. So right now, though, we are going to play the five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. Big win today for the University of Oregon men's basketball program. You heard it from Stephen during your update. But one of the top players in the class of 2023 committed to Oregon today, Kwame Evans Jr., chose the Oregon Ducks over Arizona, Kentucky, and Auburn. This is the number seven rated player in the class and considered the number three power forward. He goes 6'9", 200 pounds. He's an athletic four, has good ball skills, can shoot the three. He can defend smaller guards. This is the uh, number two ranked Oregon commit in the recent era. They place him 24-7 sports being the they. They put him beside behind Bull Bull, who was in the class of 2018. He'll join four-star point guard Jackson 
Shellstad, West Lynn High School star in Oregon's 2023 class. This marks the sixth five-star commitment for Oregon in the past seven recruiting classes. Keep an eye on that. That is number one. Number two, the Padres won the Juan Soto sweepstakes. That's right, the Padres dealt a plethora of prospects and young players in order to get this guy, Juan Soto. I, I think if he sees a cookie, yeah, let it fly, baby. I'm, I'm with you. If you're scared, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be here. Let it rip if it's a good one. He rips it. It's up the middle. Victor Robles comes around third, and the Nationals walk off the Braves on opening day. The Nats go to 1-0. I mean, all they've been through the last three or four days with all the players they're missing to beat the defending NL East champs. Unbelievable, folks. There it is, Juan Soto opening day. He was a hero, now he's a Padre. That's number two. Padres getting another great young player in their lineup. How will they screw it up? I don't know. We'll keep an eye on it. Number three that we're talking about uh, is the Miami Dolphins. They're a mess. They have been penalized by the NFL for tampering. It relates to the Dolphins' pursuit of Coach Sean Payton, who is with the New Orleans Saints, and quarterback Tom Brady, who is with the Patriots. Ownership of the Dolphins fined $1.5 million, losing a first-round draft pick next year. The NFL does not look kindly upon teams that attempt to circumvent the rules. There you have it. Is that four or three? I can't remember. That's three. I wanted to say that was four, but I was so excited about Juan Soto finally getting a, to go win somewhere that I counted that double. All right, number four in our five at five. Let's talk a little bit about Oregon State. Jonathan Smith in Oregon State Jonathan Smith on Media Day talked about the opportunity for Oregon State to not win six games or seven games or eight games or nine games. He talked about trying to win all 12 this season. That's a brand new Jonathan Smith. I think we want to win the championship. We want to go to Vegas and, and, and be in the Pac-12 championship game. Each year's new. We've made some real progress. Uh, we feel, you know, feel good about the progress made. We've got a lot left, and each week you got to play well to be able to win games. What I'm confident in saying is that each time we line up, we feel confident. If we play well, we can win, and we can win 12, 12 games or whatever it will take to get there. Um, but, again, what we, the progress we've made, it really means a, well, nothing for uh, this coming season until you start playing. you got to win the games. Doesn't mean anything. I actually disagree with him. I think it does mean something. Vegas opened Oregon State's over-under win total at five and a half this season. It's now sitting at six. I still like the over for Oregon State. I think they are a really good bet to win seven, eight, right in there. I think another opportunity uh, may be Stanford. Their over-under is four and a half. Way too low. Steven, you like Stanford over on the four and a half. Love the Stanford over. Uh, you know, David Shaw talked about being a tiger in the weeds. I mean, both these coaches, Jonathan Smith and David Shaw, both very confident with their group. And that's something I just wasn't expecting them to be so out in the open about, right? Like, that's just not really their style, but they were both doing that. So I love Stanford over four and a half. 
And I think for Oregon State, if they want to get over that six, they're going to have to at least split those first two games against Boise and Fresno. Uh, but it's going to be a tough ask with those two teams. Yeah, it's a tough place to play. Bulldog Stadium is uh, chewed up a few Pac-12 teams. The Cal went in there and lost. Oregon State went in there and lost with Derek Anderson at quarterback. Uh, tough venue to play in. And you're getting Jeff Tedford, Fresno State, not Kalen DeBoer, Fresno State. Could be a little different there. Finally, fifth thing in our 5-at-5, five five, Denver Broncos wide receiver Tim Patrick is now out for the season. Season-ending torn ACL. Suffered during drills today. He was in uh, passing drills. He caught a pass. He turned to run upfield. His legs buckled. He grabbed his knee. Patrick led the Broncos in touchdown receptions last year. He was going to be a starter in the rotation this year. He's out for the year. They stopped practice as they brought him out. They held up practice. Safety Kareem Jackson, who's in his 13th NFL season, said it was a testament to Patrick's standing among the team that they held up practice as long as they did. He signed a three-year, $30 million deal in November of last year. He is out. It'll be the third consecutive season that the Broncos have lost one of their top receivers to injury. And that is our five at five. Injuries are always hard to see happen. Especially hard when you happen when they happen in training camp or they happen in a non contact drill or God forbid they happen in a meaningless exhibition game. But this is the game that they play in the NFL. Tough to see that happen. Uh I wanna play a little game with you guys. Can we play a little over under game? Yeah, Everybody wanna play this? Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm looking at the Vegas win totals because we brought it up uh, as part of talking about Oregon State and Stanford. But I'm going to go through every team, and we're just going to go over, under, cast your vote. If you feel strongly about it, say why. Uh, if you don't, say say that as well. But let's let's go inverse alphabetical order. So we're going to start with USC. We've done a little bit of this in spots, so some of it will be redundant, but let's play this game. Over, under for USC is sitting at 9 in year one of Lincoln Riley's tenure. Who likes the over? Who likes the under? That's an under for me there, John. I mean, I think nine is pretty much best-case scenario because I just I don't know about all these transfers, and we've seen it in basketball that transfers can work, but we haven't seen it in football. And football is a much more team game than basketball where you know you can get a group of transfers and they can work well. Football is the ultimate team game, so to get a, such a big group of transfers in here, I just don't – think it's going to gel as quite as well as everyone thinks it's going to be for USC in year one. Uh, you know, I talked about this. I think they lose to either Stanford or Oregon State uh, in the first four games, and that's a win, that's a win that you uh, Vegas thinks they're going to get. So uh, I'd go nine. I'd go under on that one. I'm going over. I think uh, Lincoln Riley is, is yet to have a, a bad season as a head coach, and I think they have a ton of talent. And I think my prediction for their schedule itself, I think they, they lose one game to a Stanford or an Arizona State or an Oregon State, and then they go one and one against the two hardest games on their schedule, Utah and Notre Dame. I think they lose to Utah. I think they lose to Notre Dame. I think they lose to Oregon State uh, slash Stanford. They're going to lose at least one of those, maybe both. Uh, they got some gimmies out there. Arizona State's on the schedule, but look, at UCLA – Cal with Justin Wilcox, uh, you know, Arizona, Arizona State, they win. Rice is a win. I think this is a solid 7-8 win USC team. For that reason, I go under. Well, even I think make it's a- three with against Fresno State. That's no gimme. No right? gimme. We don't know about USC's defense. They're going to put no. up some points in that game. 
and Jeff Tedford's dangerous. Like he he will exploit you if you don't know what you're doing on defense. So the the thing for me is you're you're asking USC to go from four wins to ten wins. Like I I think you, that there were so many problems last year that that you know simply bringing in Lincoln Riley and a bunch of offensive players I don't think it solves all their defensive problems. So it this may be a team that plays in a bunch of games that are like 42-38 and and I just for that reason I just I don't feel good about them at more than 9. UCLA over under 8 and a half. Uh any strong feelings there? I, I lean under. I, I think they're an eight and four team, so under eight and a half, just barely. I think you know they're clearly the third best. Well, I mean, maybe you guys don't think clearly. I think clearly USC and Utah are better than them. So in the Pac-12 South, and then you know they have to go to Autzen, which is going to be tough. So I think there's four losses on that schedule. I, I say they're an eight and four squad under. Yeah, that this schedule for UCLA is very favorable. Uh, you know, they got their first four games: Bowling Green, Alabama State, South Alabama at Colorado. Cupcakes. That Cupcakes. should be four zero. Uh, but then you know, then you're going to go Washington, Utah, Oregon. So, I agree with Sean. I don't have a good feeling about it. I would go under. I think eight and four sounds about right. But if things break well, you know, they could get to nine and three because the schedule is pretty easy. I think they go. I think they win nine. I'm going over. Uh, you know, you you talk about offense being in good hands. The defense has got a new defensive coordinator. It was brought in. Bill McGovern was brought in because they thought, you know, Jerry Azanaro and this defense, you know, needs a new face. I think they build a little here, but the biggest factor is the schedule. It's Cupcake City, man. It's Bowling Green. That's a win. Alabama State's a win. South Alabama's a win. Colorado's a win. They they probably beat Washington. Uh, they beat Arizona. So all of a sudden I'm going, you know, can they beat Arizona State? You know, but here's the problem. They play USC, they play at Oregon, and they play Utah at home. And for that reason, I got them at nine. So I'll go over the eight and a half, but not by much. Stanford, over, under, we talked about this. I like over four and a half. You guys? Yeah, I think four and a half. I think they're an an easy bowl eligible team at six and six. I think they could even surprise and shock even more, get to seven, eight wins, even potentially – compete for that Pac-12 uh, championship game. I think I think they're, uh, they're a team with David Shaw, one of the best coaches in the conference that have a lot of talent back. He even mentioned they only lost two guys at the transfer portal. So they bring a lot back. I think it's going to be a good season for Stanford. Yeah, I think Stanford, in a vacuum, they, there should be over four and a half, but you, there has to be someone bad in the Pac-12 North, right? Like, it feels like we kind of like all of these teams. Maybe Cal's that bad team. It feels like there needs to be some team that's at the bottom of the standings, and I think Stanford could be that team, but I think they're over four and a half. I also look at Stanford, and I look at, you know, the quarterback, and then I look at, the, the pass catchers, they've got the wide receivers and they've got the tight ends. That is a deep offensive unit, maybe the deepest Stanford has been at, in some time. And I think they're going to have a bunch of guys at wide receiver and tight end who will play in the NFL. They, you know, those who cover this program say they have, they think they have four NFL pass catchers on this team. You, you combine that with Tanner McKee, I think David Shaw easily wins more than four and a half and, games. And the schedule also is on at USC week two, or against USC, sorry, at home, USC week two. I think that's a great time to catch USC. And then they get at Washington week four, new coach. You want to play those teams earlier in the season before they kind of get some chemistry going. So I think they catch a couple of the new coaches early on, which could be helpful. The only thing that that gives me pause with Stanford is their schedule because it's Colgate. That's a win. Colgate's a win. But their other non-conference games, BYU and Notre Dame, 
are as hard as it comes. And Stanford, you know, give David Shaw some credit. He'll play he plays the best schedule. But Stanford couldn't run the ball last year and they couldn't stop the run. So two and seven in conference play. They've got to be better this year. Uh, I'm I'm gonna buy them as a five six win team. Not gonna get crazy. And you know the two teams the you know the two teams they avoid in the Pac twelve South? Arizona and Colorado. So they yeah. have to play all of the best teams in the Pac twelve South. Yeah, so I think for that reason, let's not get crazy and say they're like an eight-win team, but six, I could see that. Let's go to Oregon State. The over-under six, I already said I'm on record. I think they go over. Uh, Big part of their season, though, relies upon those first three weeks. Boise State, Fresno State, Montana State. If they can be 3-0 and there, they are poised for a week four game against USC. Yeah, I think they split those first two games with Boise State, Fresno State. I I just think it's going to be hard for... Oregon State to get both of those wins, uh, and because of that, I mean, I would lean, I probably would lean under, I think, but I think six is the right number. Like, I think they're going to be six and six and get to bowl eligibility, but for me, I feel terrible about it. I would never make this bet, but I think I would lead under. Yeah, I think it's a it's a push if the over under six. I think they're a six and six team, and uh, a big part of my thinking is that I I don't think it's going to be as easy to win at home this year with the the construction. I don't think the fans are going to be as loud, and uh, you know it's going to be pretty much half full. So I wonder what their home field advantage is going to be like. Dan Lanning's first year, the over under Vegas is set for Oregon is at nine wins. We'll talk in the next segment and continue the over unders when it comes to the Ducks and some others. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We're playing a little game called Over Under. Going through the Pac 12 football teams that are starting practice this week. Tomorrow is Media Day at the University of Oregon. We already had Pac-12 Media Day, but Oregon will do their own Media Day. The Ducks' over-under win total for this season is now set at nine wins in Vegas. I would feel better about an over if I saw this around seven and a half. Um, Eastern Washington, that's a W. BYU, it's a maybe. Georgia, probably a loss. Utah, a loss. Um at Washington State, Stanford, at Arizona, UCLA, at Cal, at Colorado, Washington, at Oregon State. Um, Dan Lanning's transition from the SEC to the Pac-12 is going to come with a growth growth curve. For that reason, I, I think Oregon's got eight wins written all over it. I'll say under by a hair on the over-under of nine wins. I think nine, John. I think nine is the number for me. I'm going to take the over. And my thinking here is I know Dane Lanning is a first-year head coach, but we go back last season and we look at Mario Cristobal, and we know he wasn't a great you know, in-game coach, and he made a lot of emotional decisions, and the team still won 10 games. So with Dane Lanning, he may not be great, but he's probably not going to be worse than Mario Cristobal was as an emotional coach on the sidelines. So I think Dane Lanning will have the talent. I think the Ducks have a couple games where uh, should be wins. I think they should beat BYU. I think it's nine wins for the Ducks, and I I actually like that quite a bit. That's a push, though. I, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I'm looking I'm looking on uh, my offshore right now. And I have yeah. an eight and a half. I can get it for eight. minus one forty five. Okay, at eight and a half, I'd feel better about your nine. But so I I think I would still take the over if it was nine because I think best case I think the Ducks could get to ten wins because that's what they got last season with Cristobal. Dan Laney as the new coach. 
I don't think I don't think it could be worse than Cristobal. <laughs> so. Do you think we're gonna have the same issues come Monday? Every Monday of Cristobal's tenure, it was, you know, Mario won the game, but his in-game coaching decisions are suspect. Are we gonna have some of that with Dan Landing in year one, or do you think? They hit the ground, and they mostly look like they know what they're doing on game day. I think it's going to be a lot of the same. And so for that reason, I do think that the Ducks can still get to 10 wins. But I think I think it's the same. Dan Lane is a great recruiter, but the Ducks are so talented that when they do lose to other Pac-12 schools, it's definitely not the player's fault. Like It's going to be the coach's fault because they're not coaching them well enough, if that makes sense, because they have the best talent in the conference. They should get to 10 wins pretty much every year if they're playing the Pac-12 schedule. Yeah, I... With uh, this Oregon schedule, I agree with you. George is a loss, and I think Utah is a loss. Like, I, I can't see Dan Lanning in his first year out coaching Kyle Whittingham. And, you know, with what with what Utah did against Oregon last year, I think they'll be able to at least beat them. Um, you know, maybe not dominate them, but I think they'll be able to beat them in Odson and end that big streak. And then you have to look for other losses on this schedule. And to me, and call me crazy, but I'm I'm really worried about call, going to Pullman uh, week four. That one, I think, is kind of a 50-50 to me. I think they beat BYU, and, you know, maybe there's another fluky loss on there. And so it, it comes down to whether they it's like the Mario Cristobal era and they, they lose some of those fluky games. I think Dan Lanning's going to be better than Mario Cristobal. I think he's going to rely on his assistants more, and I think they go 9-3 and three losses to Georgia, Utah, and I'll say Washington State is kind of their their bad loss this year. Which which Bo Nix are we getting? That's another question I have. I actually think this line is set really well at eight and a half nine for Oregon because I think it's going to be really hard for Oregon fans not to bet over on this. And but if you're betting over and the line is nine, you're literally leaving no margin for error on a team that you know we don't know with Bo Nix and. I, while I think you know Noah Sewell and the front seven are going to be really good, how will they be in the secondary? And you know I don't know. I with Oregon, I kind of feel that line is set right. Like if we were setting a line, I'd set it at eight and a half, nine. I'd put it right there because I think that really is going to make people think, and I think it's going to split the audience. Frankly, let's go to Colorado. Over under is three and a half. They have a really tough schedule. They have six true road games. They have no pushover opponents. Uh, Oregon and Washington are both on the schedule in the north. But is Colorado so void of talent that it can't win four games? That's the question that's hanging out out there. Uh, Three and a half. I'm going to say under. I'm going under. Yeah, I think they're uh, they're pretty clearly the worst team in the uh, in the Pac-12. I think talent-wise, and you know who they lost in the transfer portal this off season. And yeah, you're right. Their schedule's not easy. Like I think TCU is going to be a loss, and I think they have a chance to beat Air Force. But then you go through, you know, then they have Minnesota, and then you go through the Pac-12 conference. And I don't really see a lot of wins there. Like I, I think they're a two-win team. To be honest with you, it sounds rough, but I think they're a two-win team. Yeah, you go through their schedule, and if it's three and a half. I mean, best case scenario, and like Sean said, these could all be L's too. These aren't guaranteed wins, but you, they could maybe beat Air Force. They could maybe win at Arizona, even though it's on the road. And that's probably about it. California at home, like that's no. three, and that's best case scenario. They're not so, beating Cal, not yeah. with Justin Wilcox. But yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. I, I agree yeah. with you, and so I think it's a it's a hard under for me. Like I I love the under of three and a half. ASU at home, maybe. Yeah, I, I guess know. maybe that one. Maybe. Maybe I think they can they can win at Air Force. I think they maybe can beat Arizona State at home. Everything else is kind of a loss. Yeah, because even at Arizona, like you know, Jed Fish is going to get his guys up for that game because that's one of the wins that they can get. Carl Durrell, it was it's a weird 
position to be in. Okay, you're one-on-one interviewing these guys. Coaches are coming in, and everybody's talking with hope and you know, all this stuff. Carl Durrell showed up, and I was found myself like reaching for optimistic things to talk about, like the gr- the clean air in Colorado and <laughs> the grass, and you know, it, it's 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 I I don't I can't imagine what it feels like for him to have to go to media day, where a bunch of teams are coming in talking about going to bowl games and winning the conference, and then here comes the rankings of the conference play, and you're picked dead last, and the over-under on your win total, it feels like three and a half is so far away. Like, you know, some other programs have been there, but I felt bad for the guy having to show up and speak to that. Cal, over-under five and a half. They've got UC Davis and UNLV on the schedule. They're going to win those games. They got Arizona. That's a win. They're at Colorado. That's a win. After that, so I got them with four solid wins. There's some winnable games, some maybes, like the Stanford game. Oregon State is a maybe. Oregon's a maybe. Cal plays them tough. But I'm having a hard time finding a Cal team that, with the last two years, they went 6-10 and ten with a quarterback who was worth a damn. I don't know how good they're going to be on offense. Uh, I think under – Five and a half is probably the bet. They're probably a five-win team. I I agree with you, but I don't feel good about it. And the reason is just because Justin Wilcox. I think he's such a good coach. I have a hard time betting the under. But you look at their schedule. There's it's hard to get to six wins. Like you pointed out, you know they got four wins. I think that they can get. And then after that, it's can they win at Washington State? Can they beat at Oregon State? Can they win at home against Stanford? I don't know, man. I I would I don't feel good about it, but I would lean towards the under in that one. Yeah, I I feel like they again someone has to be the worst team in the Pac-12 North. Like unless this conference, this division of the conference, just completely beats itself up, uh, I I think that Cal's Cal's that worst team, and they have four obvious wins. And you know, is Justin Wilcox good enough? It seems like the last half dozen of their games, they're all they're going to be underdogs in all of them. Is Justin Wilcox good enough to lead them to two upsets? There, I, I'll say no. I think they get five wins. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Did you guys notice? So I asked Wilcox on Media Day about, you know, whether or not he turned down the Oregon job. He declined to say it, but told me when he's done coaching, years from now, we will sit down and we will talk about it. Um, I've got some thoughts on what happened with Wilcox. I'll share them coming up. But I want to finish this with Arizona State and Arizona before we get to that. Arizona State's over-under is six wins. They've got Northern Arizona. Eastern Michigan. They got a shot against Washington. They'll beat Arizona. They're going to have to surprise me. You know, uh, win, at, win at Colorado, probably. It gets them to five. I'm having a hard time finding seven wins on their schedule. The line is six. Um, but I don't trust it. Like, I want to go over on Arizona State, but I don't trust them. Like, could they win eight? They probably could. Can they be bowl eligible? They probably could. They got a transfer quarterback in Emory Jones. They got an unproven group of receivers. I just don't trust Arizona State. For that reason, I'll go under six. I don't either. And when Herm Edwards was hired, I know it was there's a lot of skeptical people, including myself, and he kind of uh, went over expectations. But now that I'm looking at it, it seems like this is a program that is just in trouble with itself. And it seems like it is a ticking time bomb. It could explode at any point and be really bad. So for that reason, I agree with you. I think the under is the play. But just as you said, Herb Edwards has 
seems like he has evolved as a coach, and he seems like he could get these guys up and get them to bowl eligibility. I just, if I'm making a bet with my money, I'm feeling good on the under. Yeah, they're the mystery team to me. I, I really don't know what to expect out of Arizona State. I, I feel like, you know, they, they return three starters on offense, four on defense, which is troublesome. But I, I feel like Arizona State's going to be a team that will go to Colorado and maybe lose. But they're also a team that you don't want to see in Tempe. Like, I'd be scared if Oregon uh, had to play them this year in Tempe. Like, I, I think they're just going to have a roller coaster season. And I think they're they're probably a five-win team. I don't think they, they see a bowl this year. I think there's just too much uh, inexperience and a little bit of shadiness going on in that program right now. Yeah, they're going to have to win – a couple of games I don't expect them to win to get over six wins. I just can't see that happening. Arizona, finally, their over-under is set at two and a half. They play North Dakota State. They play Colorado. I could see them winning those two games. I'm having a hard time finding win number three on their <laughs> schedule. No obvious wins on this schedule. But they'll be better than they were at 1-11. and 11. I told Jed Fish this. The goal for them is to be more competitive in the games they lose. And that's a hard thing for a coach to accept, but I think that's where they are. Arizona, I think, is going to win two games. For that reason, I'll say under. Yeah, you made a good point kind of relating them to Oregon State, right? A few years ago when Oregon State was uh, really down and they won one game and then the next year they won two, but they were kind of competitive, which then catapulted them to five the next season. So I agree with you. I think two is probably right, but they're going to be very competitive in a lot of games so it wouldn't surprise me if they get to three, uh, but if I'm betting, but I don't feel good about it, I'd still go with the under. I'm pretty passionate about the over here. I think that Jed Fish, I, I like Jed Fish, and I really like what they did this offseason, bringing in Jaden Delora, bringing in, I think they brought in 10 players from the portal, and then they added a five-star receiver who's going to contribute right away. And you're right, North Dakota State, even though that's that's the king of the, uh, the FCS, I think that's a win. Colorado is a win. And then you're telling me they can't upset anyone like Arizona State or maybe a Washington State or... Uh, Cal, like I, I think there's at least one more on their schedule. I think it's just, you know, I, I really think that they, uh, they're going to be able to win one more. I think they're a three-win team this year. We want to talk about Justin Wilcox. What happened? Plus, Georgia doing some advanced scouting on Oregon. I'll tell you what I know about that coming up. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. Don't know if you guys caught it, but Pac-12 Media Day, I got a chance to uh, talk to Justin Wilcox. Junction City kid, uh, long history with the University of Oregon, and of course, people remember uh, Wilcox, um, you know, when Mario Cristobal walked away at Oregon and went to Miami, it was Wilcox who interviewed for the job, along with BYU coach Kalani Sataki and Dan Lanning at Georgia. There were some other people that they were interested in, but, you know, those of you who listen to the show, you know that Dan Lanning got the job, but that Justin Wilcox was offered the job prior to Lanning taking it. And that's no knock on Dan Lanning. That's just how it went down. Um, I talked to Chip Towers the great reporter, longtime Georgia beat writer today. Uh, he was on our show right around that time when Lanning was hired. He was the one who first reported Dan Lanning had accepted the job at Oregon. He and I talked for a while about that whole process and how that went down. And I told him, you know, I talked to Justin Wilcox at Media Day on Friday, and 
it was evident from Wilcox's answer, and I asked him, was he offered the job? And if so, why did he turn it down? And Wilcox looked at me, and he gave me that look saying, I can't answer that question. No good is going to come from it. And he said, we will sit down years from now when it's all done, and I will tell you a long story. Now, I told Chip, Chip Towers today that I know that Justin Wilcox was offered the job. I'm asking him a question I already know the answer to. He was offered the job on the Friday that Dan Lanning was also offered the job, except Wilcox was offered the job in the morning. He turned Oregon down. Oregon then turned and pivoted towards Dan Lanning and said, this is our choice. Uh, they offered Lanning the job and began to negotiate with, with Lanning's uh, agent. And then on the Saturday, the next day at about 4 o'clock, Lanning was announced as Oregon's coach. But on that Saturday morning, Oregon went back to Justin Wilcox, I am told. And they went and they said, are you sure? And Wilcox told him, I am sure. I am happy at Cal. I'm going to stay at Cal. Here is my theory on what happened with all of that. And it's an educated theory. I'm not going to speak for Justin Wilcox. I don't think Oregon's going to want anybody talking about this. But I believe that Wilcox was offered the job with the caveat of Oregon wanting to handpick his staff. The Oregon Athletic Department slash Phil Knight, slash some other boosters, wanted to play a role in who Justin Wilcox was going to bring on his coaching staff. We all know Bill Musgrave was his longtime coordinator. We all know uh, Peter Sermon is his defensive guy. I don't believe that they were going to come along for the ride, and I think that gave Justin Wilcox some pause. I also think that he went into that interview looking for reasons to turn the job down. I'm told that by other people. I think Justin Wilcox saw how Mark Helfrich, native son of Coos Bay, Oregon, was treated by media, fans, and the university after getting the job. And I think in a lot of cases we think about a guy like Mario Cristobal going home to Miami and we think about all the good parts of it. We don't often think about the negative parts of taking a job in your hometown. Everybody wants to go home, right? I know. I did the same damn thing. I started out in newspapers, grew up in the Bay Area, born in the state of Oregon, but grew up in the Bay Area. And the newspaper that I was reading as a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid was the San Jose Mercury News. I also read the San Francisco Chronicle and the San Francisco Examiner. And so in my mind, making it, air quotes there, in the newspaper business was getting to the papers I grew up reading. And I did that. I went and I went off to Indiana and covered IU and Notre Dame and Purdue and ended up in Tallahassee, Florida, around Florida State, and then went to Fresno State and covered TARC. And then the Mercury News said, hey, we'd like to hire you to cover the NFL and Major League Baseball. And I said, that's making it. I'm going home. But I'm not a head football coach. And if I had made my career trusting the people around me, I probably would have had a hard time with that entity saying, well, you can't bring anybody who made you what you are. So I do think Justin Wilcox entertained the idea of taking the job. I think he got as far with Oregon 
as talking about who would be on his staff. And I think he was told by Oregon that we want to control who's on your coaching staff. And I think it's evident if you watched Dan Lanning's hire and Oregon's role in putting that staff together that there was some meddling that went on. And Dan Lanning probably welcomed it because he was a first-time head coach. He didn't have loyalty to an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator. He wasn't burning a bridge by going, hey, you know what, I'm going to go, and I'm not taking you with me. No, like I think Oregon played a definite role in getting Kenny Dillingham to him and Tosh Lapoy and Adrian Clem and you know taking Washington's receiver coach and – I think it was a hand-picked staff that was put together by the hiring committee at Oregon. Not necessarily Dan Lanning, but I think Lanning probably played a role in picking who it is that he wanted on his staff. But I think ultimately there were some decisions that were made at the 20,000-foot level for Dan Lanning that he's probably okay with because, hey, I've never been a head coach before. Um, you know, I welcome the input, and let's get to business putting this staff together. And, you know, it felt probably felt collaborative to him. But for imagine you're in Justin Wilcox's position at Cal. You're being offered this job. Oregon is awfully worried about the blowback they're going to get from their own alumni base if they don't hire you. So I believe Oregon extended an offer to Justin Wilcox with the caveat of, hey, you're not going to be able to bring your whole staff. And, in fact, here's who we have you taking. And it probably is – much the same staff that Dan Lanning ended up with. So if you're Justin Wilcox, I think his remark to me, and I don't know how closely you guys were tracking it, but it was more the way he looked at me when I asked him the question. He looked at me basically like, I have a story to tell you, John, and I will tell you someday. When it's safe for me to say so, I will give you the whole story on why I didn't take my the job at my alma mater, the school I grew up rooting for, I think a big part of it was I think Oregon was dictating to Justin Wilcox and Dan Lanning or whoever took the job, here's who's going to be on your staff. And then further, I think the ultimate difficult climb for a guy in Wilcox's position is to come back to your state with the scrutiny, the microscope, the magnifying glass, whatever you want to put on that, and have to coach knowing that the last guy who tried that, Mark Helfrich, went 5-7 and seven and got fired in his last year, even though he had Justin Herbert. And I think there is probably some of that. Like, if you're Wilcox's mother, you know, the story goes, I don't have this from her directly, but another reporter at a major publication talked to her one time about Justin eventually getting the job, and it was right in the wake of Mark Helfrich getting fired, and I believe the quote that came back from Mom was, I don't know how I would feel about my son taking the job here in the state of Oregon. Like, maybe just a little too, flying a little cl too close to the sun, so to speak. Easier job to be in Berkeley, coaching at Cal where the expectations are lower. You get to hire your own people. It's you. It's your staff. You don't have to do things. And there were some comments made by Wilcox about, you know, it not being the place that he left behind. And I think there's 100% honesty in that it's not the place that he went to school at it's not the charming rich brooks mike bellotti program anymore oregon elevated the program under chip kelly 
Mark Helfrich, Willie Taggart, Mario Cristobal, to the point where it's out like a bounty hunter looking for high-profile assistants, high-profile recruits, and a very different culture than the one that Justin Wilcox played in as a player. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just think that is what happened. I think that's the backstory. Now, the second part that I teased before the break, Chip Towers of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is heading out to the state of Oregon. I believe he's heading out in a week or so. He's doing some advanced work. Uh, he's been on that Georgia beat for 35 years. This gives you an idea about how nutty it is down in the south in the SEC. They got Chip Towers coming out and spending like a week in Oregon. And I said to him, what are you writing about? And he says, oh, I'm going to write about Dan Lanning. I'm going to write about what people in Oregon think about this game. It's a big game for Georgia, even though it's a game Georgia's an 18-point favorite. They're the defending national champions. There's so much interest around the program that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is flying Chip Towers out early to do some advanced work for the fan base of Georgia on the Oregon program. So if you're keeping score at home, I'm going to give Oregon a win on that front. And I told Dan Landing at Media Day, I expect Oregon to play closer than 18 points in this game. I think they're going to cover. And I think they're going to cover because so many questions at Georgia, offense, defense, whatever, so many questions. And I think Oregon will fly around in week one. It's an opener. And just play. They'll, I think they'll play Georgia tougher than 18 points. I also think Dan Lanning probably knows some state secrets at Georgia. Maybe there's some things he could take advantage of here or there. Will Georgia have a, uh, a more highly touted uh, group of players? Absolutely. But I like some of the guys Oregon has. And I like the fact that Bo Nix has played in big SEC games. This isn't going to be wide-eyed. I don't know what I'm doing. I think we'll get a quarterback starting this game who feels comfortable. And I think you get a coordinator, former D coordinator, Dan Lanning, who knows some things. And I think you have the squirrely nature of week one of the college football season. And for that reason, I like Oregon to play Georgia closer than 18 points. I am not predicting a victory as I did in week two last year. I called Oregon over Ohio State. I have not seen that yet. I don't know that to be true. I don't know if I'll ever arrive in that position. But I like Oregon to play Georgia closer than 18. Leave it here. Some final thoughts coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Been a good show today. John Wilner, San Jose Mercury News, was great in Hour 2. Nick Daschle covers Oregon State. was very, very good in Hour 1. We dove deep on both those topics. If you missed any of it, grab the podcast. I was looking at the podcast numbers today. Sean, you and your team, fantastic job. You know, do you know how many people have listened to a podcast of this show in the last 12 months? Take a stab. It's about it's about 1,500 every day. So 3 million. 3 million is my guess. We're at 3.2 million in the last 12 months. That growth, if you look back even a couple of years ago, um, has 
exploded. Like, I will not be surprised if you hit four million this year. And I say you because it's all you, man. You're doing the podcast, and I know Stephen, you're doing stuff as well behind the scenes and flying the aircraft. Like, nobody asks the pilot when you're getting off, like, hey, how did that go for you? But you guys are doing a fantastic job, and I uh, appreciate the on-air stuff today, too. I like that we didn't agree on everything, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, with my job, you know, people only notice if I do a bad job. So uh, <laughs> that's uh, – I like when no one says anything to me. You're an umpire. Yeah, exactly. Way. Nobody even noticed you were there, and you're like, fantastic day. <laughs> Perfect. No one talked to me. Look, um, I, I hope USC's bad this year. Honestly, you're talking to someone that, mm, you know, is an Oregon fan. You're drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, though. They're They're kind of like – like the Warriors are a team that I just have a lot of respect for, and I acknowledge every year they're going to be really good. But as a Blazers fan, I really want the Warriors to not do well, and that's kind of how I feel as a Duck fan with USC right now. Are you getting a USC tattoo in the next week or two? No, that's that's kind of how you were talking about USC. Sound, sounds like a bet needs to be made. <laughs> USC goes no, out. Sean gets I, a tattoo. I don't want to do that. To no, anybody. no, we'll, we'll figure you something know. else out for you. <laughs> You know how the people do that for Fantasy League and whatever, and I always think, gosh, that's horrible. That means you have bad friends if you guys are getting tattoos for the loser and stuff. So I do think there should be some kind of wager. Like maybe Sean has to go to the Oregon-Oregon State game late in the year, and he has to hold up a sign that says, Go USC. <laughs> and he has to wear a USC jersey and walk around the stadium for the first half. Like, that could be the bet. Just see how much grief he gets. I like that. Just wearing a T-shirt to <laughs> Autzen Stadium in November would be enough punishment, let alone a, let alone a USC T-shirt. Oh, yeah, the game's at Reeser this year. Oh, that's Reeser. Right. Yeah, that's right. But still, it would be kind of fun to see you, like, you know, holding up a sign saying, bring on, you know, bring on Utah, and you're in a USC <laughs> uniform. <laughs> I love that. Uh, all right, I want people to grab the podcast. Sean invests all this time, effort, and energy in making sure that the individual interviews of the show plus the show itself is podcasted in a way that's easily digestible, happens in real time. He does a great job with it. Reward him by listening to that episode. Share it liberally with your friends. If you heard something during the show that you like or an interview you liked and you thought, hey, my neighbor would love that or my dad would love that or my mom would love that, send them the link to the podcast they get it teach them how to podcast hell i got a friend who's 74 he listens to the podcast every day i'm blown away by it because like a year ago he was like what is a podcast now he's a podcast listener so you know you can uh, you can help not only set the vcr for the older people in your lives but you can help uh, you know make them introduce them to podcasting so you can do that as well. I want you to leave it here. Peter Sampson coming up on 750 The Game. The Pulse is next. It is must-listen-to radio. We're back tomorrow with a great Wednesday show. Thanks to everybody who makes this radio show part of their day. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.